up, Beardos? We are Vegan Warrior Princesses Attack, and you're listening to episode 119 of The Bearded Vegans. Basically, our whole philosophy boils down to, don't be a jerk. Don't really answer your question first. I not answer your question. I really hope people didn't tune in to hear us talk about beards. Welcome to the show. I'm Paul. And I'm Andy. And I'm Nicole. And I'm Callie. And we are the Bearded Vegans. And Vegan Warrior Princesses Attack. A podcast featuring a dissection of all things vegan. If you're just tuning in for the first time, you can find all of our previous episodes at thebeardedvegans.com. And you can reach us by emailing thebeardvegans at gmail.com. In our third annual crossover episode, we'll go over the news and dive into a deep discussion about the current state of the animal rights movement relating to the recent public allegations of abuse and harassment exposed by hashtag Time's Up AR. Woohoo! <laughs> I'm so excited to be back in the presence of the amazing Vegan Warrior Princesses attack. Yeah! <laughs> I know, I love this annual tradition. I know, I love that it's become a tradition. I know. <laughs> and I, I feel like... It just sort of fell into our lap that all this is happening right now, and we couldn't think you know, any any better people to be talking about this with. So, can't wait to dive into it. Well, we're so excited to have to do this subject with you two. I feel mm-hmm. like we're going to have a good cross section of opinions and uh, perspectives on this. So, we're really excited that you were so excited about talking <laughs> about this topic. So many people would not be. <laughs> <laughs> Sexual assault allegations are not usually a crowd pleaser, shockingly enough. It is pretty shocking. Right. (laughs) For the record, we'd like to state we are not excited about the actual allegations themselves, but. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Definitely not. As we we all nervously laugh around to the topic. I know, right? (laughs) All right. So we usually start our show with news. You do the same, so we will be keeping up with that tradition. First up today is a somewhat old story, but uh, seemed really appropriate considering everything that was going on. This is reported on animalchannel.co. It says new law will require animal abusers to be registered like sex offenders. This is dated December 22nd. 2017. So in some states and cities, animal abusers will now be registered on a blacklist similar to a sex offender list. This is a major victory for animal rights as the measure will prevent offenders from coming near pets and it also gives people peace of mind. The ultimate goal is to stop animal abuse altogether and an animal abuse abusers registry is a huge step towards that goal. So this is pretty great. In my opinion, this would allow pet stores to check the registry before allowing people to adopt and take home a new family member to make sure that there haven't been any allegations or abuses reported in the past. It's not going to be in all states yet, but hopefully more cities, states, counties, you know, join in so that it can be across the country. And as we know, a lot of times we find out that people started out abusing animals that go on to abuse humans. So hopefully this will also help maybe identify people that may have some history with animal abuse so that we can be aware 
when they're serial killing everyone yeah when there are allegations against them or like rumors of you know just people to look out for I think I mean I have early intervention too yeah we have kind of a fraught relationship with law enforcement obviously we're not usually a huge fan so it's it's always a little tricky when we see stories like this um with people being put on watch lists but I do think um maybe identifying some people that shouldn't be allowed to take in people and animals that are vulnerable is a good thing and hopefully this will cut down on animal abuse and domestic violence i'm surprised that we didn't hear about this story before but it's also i don't know this isn't something that i i imagined happening like i don't know why but it it didn't seem like something that would happen but the more i think about it i guess more than just vegans care about companion animals dogs and cats so it it does make sense why this would get more support but for some reason this had never crossed my mind as something that would happen but i guess it's cool that it is happening Mm. yeah yeah i felt the same way paul i was surprised to see the headline because it i don't know for some reason it didn't seem like something that would go through yeah Mm -hmm. yeah as yeah as someone who is not a fan of um our current judicial system i guess i i also feel wary of it but i think anything that prevents people from getting vulnerable animals into their hands when they have a history of that is good. Part of me wonders if it sends mixed signals. Cause like, okay, are we going to put someone who eats a hamburger on there? Obviously this is just like a first <laughs> step, but I think overall it's definitely a positive step. And actually when you first, when you first read the headline, I thought the first thing that popped into my head was, Oh, this is talking about like workers at slaughterhouses that if they had some record of that then they would get on some list that's what i thought it was and then i realized oh no it, like i thought that obviously because that kind of thinking is more so on my radar than than like a, t- a typical person but i wonder if that would if that would be the case for those sorts of situations as well or if it's really just for you know dogs cats and other of those sorts of companion animals. Yeah, I'm sure it's just that right now. I mean, that's really what people's focus are that aren't also in the animal rights movement or are vegan, right? They only really care about companion animals like cats and dogs. So it's very limited in scope, definitely. Mm-hmm. I do wonder, though, if there's some, if like the wording of it would allow for those sorts of uh it would allow it to apply to those sorts of situations because I wonder if then this could be some monumentous thing for, for the vegan movement. If we could use that, that law that's going to be passed to then say, Oh, this company is on the list of like animal abusers. This company is on, if if they could apply it like that somehow, if like as almost like a, a loophole type thing. And then, cause I think people, even though people, know what's happening to these animals i think if if people wouldn't want to buy something if it said like oh this is this is someone who is a known this is a company who is known to abuse animals or something like that even though they know that it's happening people would not want to themselves be associated with that sort of thing if they're gonna be you know buying a product that has that that label on it so i don't know maybe there's some loophole that we can use that's an interesting idea because i know before i went vegan but i was getting interested in uh our food system and you know animal not animal rights at that time but being concerned about animal welfare i guess 
Um, I definitely did that thing where I fooled myself that it wasn't my meat. You know, the meat I was buying wasn't the bad meat. So as we know, it's like, what, 99% or something of the meat that people eat comes from factory farms and conditions that they, you know, kid themselves that it's not coming from. So it would be interesting to see if we could get all of that labeled. Like, hey, this is where your meat's coming from. This is how the animals have been treated. Maybe it would force more people like me back in those days to have to confront that, you know, this, the food production system is just inherently pretty cruel towards animals and that it, it is your meat. It is the stuff that you're buying and you are supporting it. So it's an interesting idea. Mm-hmm. Paul, are you saying that you think that, <laughs> that, like someone who works at a slaughterhouse, like that would be a prerequisite, like a red flag that would go on someone's record and prevent them from purchasing an animal from like a pet store. And that because of that, people could say what they do is considered so such horrible abuse that they're not even allowed to purchase a dog. Is that sort of the angle that you're taking? Well, I was thinking more for more towards I don't like know. on a corporate level, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, this is this is it seems to be applying to just specific people, but I wonder if like you could use whatever the criteria is that that would get you on this list if you could apply it to other animals or if in the I don't know, it it would be weird to me though if in the wording it says specifically to these specific animals. Maybe it maybe it does, maybe it just says like if this if these actions apply to these animals. But I almost feel like it, it would be more for just like if you do these things to any animal, but maybe there's also some language in there that lets these businesses off the hook. Like maybe there's language that says like, unless you're doing this for to like produce a product or something like that. I feel like that's exactly what they would do because we already have that. <laughs> there's We have like definitions of animal abuse. But there's exemptions for ones that are considered part of like normal agricultural process. Right. I I guess. Yeah. And this isn't like, um, and maybe I wasn't clear when I was like reading the story, but this is for like people who've been convicted um, of like animal cruelty. So it's like animal cruelty is like a legal statute already. And so people that have been convicted of that would then go on the registry the same way that like, you know, a sex offender, once they're convicted of a certain crime then they're placed on this registry so i'm it's kind of limited in scope by like what the uh animal cruelty statutes like already are i'd imagine now if you could get a company convicted of animal cruelty then it might be interesting to see Mm -hmm. how this could apply or just you know convicting a company of animal cruelty at all could open the door to interesting conversations i don't know that you'd could rule an entire company couldn't adopt a dog <laughs> and that would work. But but no to like I think that's what Paul is saying to have them have to like label their products like this was made by mm. a company that's been convicted of animal, you know animal yeah. abuse would be it, it would be an interesting kind of yeah thought experiment, I guess, to see would would that hurt the company's sales and would it force consumers to be more complicit in what they're supporting. Mm-hmm. I'm all for it. <laughs> So our second news item, this is coming to us uh, very recently, two days ago, February 9th, an article from refinery29.uk titled The Anti-Vegan Backlash Has Begun, and it's called Febru-Dairy. <laughs> it sounds like someone... Rolls right off the tongue. It sounds like someone with a cold saying February. 
<laughs> so it's like, oh, has you got a stuffy nose? <laughs> so this is this is in response to Veganuary, which uh, if if you are not familiar, you which could is check also out. Also hard to say. Veganuary dot com, and it was basically you you would sign up and take a pledge to go vegan all of January and then hopefully beyond. And they, they provided, you know, like vegan starter kits and recipes and those sorts of things. There's also this funny, I was pointing this out to Andy before on the Veganuary website, there's a spot that says people where you could click on it and see who's vegan. And you could like read profiles of people who are vegan and the way it categorizes, it has little tags for like what the person does. And the a person is either labeled as a famous people, a sports people, a business people, <laughs> or a regular people. And there's a lot of what it, it'll be like. It'll be like Craig, and then under it, regular people. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh yeah. my god, a sports people. Sports I'm a people. Sports people. <laughs> a business so, people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's Veganuary. And so let me read a little bit from this article. But now dairy farmers are fighting back with a campaign to promote their products in the UK. Hashtag FebruDairy, which admittedly isn't the catchiest name, was launched in response to Veganuary for the first time this month. They created a Twitter account, which at the time of this article being published, which was two days ago, only had about 1,800 followers. So it's not, it hasn't taken off yet. They, they made posts doing things like pointing out additives in some almond milk brands and videos of, you know, like happy cows running around and talking about the health benefits of dairy products. So it was all like very dairy propaganda type things, which I guess you would expect from February dairy. Uh, <laughs> continuing, the farmers behind the campaign are also attempting to start a viral hashtag milk pint challenge in Ew. which people drink a pint of Ew. milk and nominate others to do the same and to raise awareness awareness of what they're calling the, quote, misinformation that has circulated about the dairy industry recently. Gross. Do they show <laughs> not, everyone, not the like, appealing. clearing their throats and getting rid of all the mucus that's going to happen after <laughs> God. The the video of what? that's included in this article is so awkward because the guy chugs a pint and then he like puts it upside down in his head, but obviously there's still milk in the pint, so there's like <laughs> a little milk dripping down in his head. Mm. <laughs> Lovely. And uh, I'm so disturbed the, the last, by this. And the the last thing that's in the article is it just talks about how there has been some vegan response to Febru Dairy such as the hashtags <laughs> Feb No Dairy and Feb Brutal Dairy, Neither, both of which also aren't uh, they're not the best the best slogan February pun names I've ever heard, but still, still okay. I feel like yeah. vegans are really good at like shoving words into each other that don't belong together, like specifically mm-hmm. raw restaurants when you have like raw zanya and oh Rocco's and all that stuff. <laughs> Rocco's. Rocco's. <laughs> No, just a big nope to yeah. all that. Giant nope. Oh God, this is so upsetting. You know, I don't see a lot of um, advertising anymore. I have like ad blockers on my computer, so I kind of forget how insidious like commercials and ads are. And then every once in a while, like I'll visit a site where my ad blocker doesn't work, and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, what is going on? And I was watching something the other day. And right now, with the Olympics going on, there's a ton of advertising about dairy 
for the Olympics. And I'm probably going to like misquote this, but it was something like, you know, 90% of Olympians drink milk growing up or so it's like this whole and then you have this mother like talking to an olympian like a it sounded like a sound clip from their childhood like you have it in you already to succeed and they're talking about milk ew the whole thing is so gross and first of all it's how ridiculous that we're talking about how what percent of olympians drink milk as kids when that's so common and clearly that's not the reason they're well, olympians like they succeeded despite the dairy <laughs> yeah, drink, not you. because of it and that's got to be bullshit they must just only be counting u.s olympians because i guarantee you all the people from like asian and african countries did not grow up drinking milk thank you thank you <laughs> Ugh. Is this why I'm We're the only Olympia? ones who force our children to drink milk constantly, even though we know it's bad for them. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, I can't. Uh, that's so gross. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like it's disgusting. I feel like all this stuff kind of. Last week we talked about dairy's inevitable downfall, and I feel like this is just <laughs> evidence of dairy like grasping at straws for relevance. And yeah. it's so delightfully awkward. The milk pint challenge, like we need, we need. <laughs> I just picture the boardroom. We're like, we need something viral. We got to get the kids in on this. I had to chug yeah. a gallon of milk. It's like what? It's, <laughs> uh, it's yeah, like there is the gallon. Isn't it a gallon of milk challenge where you have to drink it without throwing up? Yeah. Like that went viral because everyone knows that much milk makes you barf. (laughs) So it's like when I hear this, I just think of the other challenge that everyone already knows about where it's like, oh, yeah, isn't the one where you puke after? Well, and they're so late to the game. It's like they're trying to capitalize on things like the ice bucket challenge. It's like that was a few years ago. People are over that now. Also, appropriation (laughs) of the ice bucket challenge. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Yes, appropriation. I will I will say, however, I did one time go in a, a YouTube spiral of watching professional uh, eating people, like people that mm-hmm. professionally eat. And yeah. like, you know, none of which who are vegan. Uh, that's not no. I guess that's not a the professional eating. Maybe that's my true calling. I didn't grow up drinking milk, but I can still become the Olympian vegan eater. But um, there was one guy that ate that drank a gallon of milk and ate like 200 chips ahoy cookies in like four, in like 40 minutes <laughs> oh. oh my god that's all that's the end of the story <laughs> <laughs> thanks paul yeah you're welcome <laughs> The dairy industry is going to sign him as yeah. their, their new sponsor. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> He'll be the new face of Forever Dairy. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, oh. this is clearly just the, um, what do you call it? The extinction burst is mm-hmm. what you're always talking about. Yeah, this is clearly like desperate flailings of an industry that's just... On its way out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for yeah. sure. Yeah. It's, it has not taken off, and I, I do not think that Forever Dairy... <laughs> Is going to be the thing that revives them. No. Pour out, pour out a glass of <laughs> almond milk for uh, the dairy industry. Oh. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> Although maybe something less water intensive. <laughs> Especially us, we live in California. That just seems... <laughs> I'll just bury one almond in the ground. There you go. <laughs> That's very sweet. Yeah. Shall, oh. we, shall we get into the, the main body of this episode here? Well, I think you're forgetting Nicole's favorite part. Oh, how could I forget? 
This is what I bring to the table <laughs> as a guest of your show. <laughs> so for those who have never listened to Vegan Warrior Princesses Attack before, we always do a really terrible joke in the middle, which I think is hilarious and Callie absolutely burns with hatred over. You're admitting they're terrible? Well, yeah, but they're like terrible in a great way. You're validating my experience right now. <laughs> I'm really happy that I could do that for you. Um, so it's usually a, some kind of dad joke. Um, so I've got a really good one for you all today. Which means it's really bad. Which means it's really bad. <laughs> all right. <clears throat> a guy walks into a bar and takes a seat. Before he can order a beer, the bowl of pretzels in front of him says, Hey, you're a handsome man. The man tries to ignore the bowl of pretzels. <laughs> I've had this experience at bars many times. Um <laughs> And orders a fine Pilsner beer. The bowl of pretzels and says, ooh, Pilsner, a great choice. You have really good taste. The guy gets really freaked out and he starts saying to the bartender, hey, what the hell? This bowl of pretzels keeps saying nice things to me. The bartender says, don't worry about it. The pretzels are complimentary. <laughs> <laughs> that was unnecessarily long for that punchline. That's the whole point. <laughs> I know. By the time you get to the punchline, you're pissed off, and then you're like... Well, then chalk it up as a win. (laughs) (laughs) That joke succeeded. So I want to thank listener Tina for that joke. She sent that to me the other day, and I said, I'm going to use that on our collaboration episode. It was a good one. Awesome. Thank you. Please don't encourage her. <laughs> the the joy that I get from actually seeing Callie react to that joke via this video chat we have yes. going right now is priceless. And my uh, that punchline husky meme yes. has the face I make where I'm like, huh? She every time. Every yeah, time she I'm does like, that at me, she always makes that face like, <laughs> and I just look at her. And you're like, it never, it's just never going to happen. <laughs> but I will always keep trying. <laughs> I know you will. <laughs> so that's the, uh, the last bit of levity we probably have for you today as we dig into the dumpster fire that is the animal rights community. <laughs> Coming out strong. Woo, coming out swinging. <laughs> yeah. This is the kind of light heart discussion you can find on Warrior <laughs> yeah. Princesses Attack. General hatred. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But said with a laugh. Yeah. Always. <laughs> All right. So Andy did amazing work in putting together a timeline of events of, you know, kind of what's gone down. Sure, this isn't everything that's happened. I know there's a lot of people out there who haven't shared certain stories or there's things that are being kept back for, you know, privacy and and safety reasons. But I think, Andy, you put together a great list. So we're going to let you two kind of go through this timeline and then we'll have a discussion of, as a movement, what do we do about this? And maybe we'll even talk about what allies can do and should not be doing yes. <laughs> right now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. So, all right, this timeline painstakingly reconstructed for everyone's <laughs> listening pleasure here. Yes. Um, I guess before I even get into the timeline, I want to acknowledge that the discussion that we're having is one that's really hard to have for a couple of reasons up until recently, uh, one of which is we're talking about abusive men 
And um, I'm going to use the term abusive because Carol Adams educated us and said, don't say predatory because that's uh, letting them off the hook like it's part of their nature. So I will say abusive from here on out. Um, And when you're dealing with these situations, that means there are victims and there are survivors. And it's a really tricky thing because you might learn something about a certain person being abusive, but you want to be respectful of that person and their experience. You don't want to take charge on on how the situation gets dealt with. So you might know someone's done something horrible, but if the survivor of said incident doesn't want that story out there, either they want to move on with their life or they don't want to face legal repercussions, which we'll talk about uh, a little later on. So it's really hard um, to do those things. And the other one, the other reason is the legal repercussions. And a lot of men in, in this movement and powerful men in general use legal means to silence people. So just from my own experience with my with my partner speaking out and then being slammed with legal hell for eight months because of it, it certainly made me very wary of like what I say about who in public forums. But all of this stuff has come to light publicly recently. I feel like it enables a lot of us to talk about it. I think it's like our responsibility as a podcast to put this out there and sort of preserve for the public record everything that's going on. Because these things tend to, you know, there's a short life cycle of activists in this movement and people forget what happened. So that's what we're going to do here. Uh, with that said, um, the first thing I want to say is the Me Too movement started 10 years ago by Toronto Burke. I want to acknowledge that because that often gets lost. But obviously, it's come to prominence pretty recently with Harvey Weinstein and the entertainment community. And it's now come to light within the animal rights community. So our timeline starts January 14th. Uh, Carol Adams, who has been a guest on our show and your show as well, right? Yes. We love Carol. Yes. Yes. So Carol Adams posted, and this is a public Facebook post. And I'm just going to read it because it's pretty short. To spend your time trying to hold someone accountable for sexual harassment in the animal rights movement, to make recommendations for the best way for him to move forward, to publicly hold himself accountable for his actions, and how healing that would be, and that he could provide an example to other men in the movement who are also perpetrators, and hope against hope that perhaps he can get it, and to wake up and see his Facebook feed and that of his friends and know that he isn't going to, and that his privilege continues to protect him, this should be simple. For heaven's sake, you know someone is a perpetrator. Please do not like his posts. Um, Obviously, there's a lot more you should do if you know someone's a perpetrator. Uh, You'll notice there's no name in this post, but she did tag Paul Shapiro. Uh, Paul Shapiro is, up until pretty recently, the vice president of uh, farm animal protection at the Humane Society of the United States, and He recently released a book called Clean Meat, which is all about cultured meat. So he's, of course, getting a lot of recognition lately because of that. Um, So we later find out that, and this is a couple of days later, but we find out that this post was a result of the day before Carol Adams and Patrice Jones and friend of the show Lauren Ornelas had a lengthy phone conversation with Paul Shapiro attempting to get him to engage in some sort of accountability process. Obviously, it did not go well, um, as per her making that post. We also learn that Paul Shapiro left HSUS recently, quietly. There was no big celebratory post. None of his colleagues were posting, oh, it was so great to have him. So it's kind of this quiet thing about him leaving pretty recently. So that happens. There is a flood of responses. People are sharing this thing. And I think a lot of people felt this big sigh of relief like oh my god carol named paul shapiro and this is a name everyone's been hearing you know whisper network for a while but now it's like out there and that kind of unleashed the floodgates uh january 18th um humane watch which is kind of interesting because they're an anti-hsus group 
and they're front center for the or their front group for the Center for Consumer Freedom, which represents big interests like alcohol and tobacco. They posted a video on their website of someone asking him about the allegations at a book signing. Uh, and he says, I don't want to be tried via social media. And th- I think all of these things sort of get the ball rolling. And that all comes to a head at January 25th. Philanthropy.com posts an article, Humane Society CEO under investigation for sexual relationship with employee. Interestingly, this is not about Paul Shapiro. This is about Wayne Pacelli, who is the head of HSUS. And they state that the board has hired a Washington law firm to investigate allegations of sexual harassment and misconduct against Wayne. It's interesting because at this point, the article only mentions like a relationship with an employee and a lot of people are like, well, what's what's wrong with that? Like, he's just having a relationship with his employee. We can kind of pause for a second and talk about power dynamics, because I do think that there is because of this rape culture we live in and the way that we've been socialized to view relationships and consent and lack of consent. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about power dynamics and people don't want to feel like anyone's telling them that they can't do certain things. And we have this idea of like, oh, we don't want to stand in the way of two people that like want to be together. But it's important to note that when you have such a power differential in a relationship, there's just no way for there to be like true consent. And when you have a boss, especially someone who's not even a direct boss, but maybe like very high up talking to someone who is or not talking, I should say, like hitting on, flirting, harassing someone who's um, has much less power and standing in the company or organization. There's just this, even if that person did like the person in power, right? There's just not an even playing field there, right? Because that person's job could potentially be on the line. And if your job is on the line, you have to think like, that's, that's your safety. Like that's your income. It's how you pay for like food, shelter, all of those things. So I I don't know. I, I really, I think as much as we want to see relationships in the workplace as like cute and sweet and it's the place we spend so much of our time, we want to think that that's like not a big deal. It, it is dangerous and it, 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 um, obscures the problem of powerful men that have like consistently gone after women and they don't just happen to fall for these girls young girls right they like actually go after them because there is the power differential there right and I just wanted to add in that I think part of the problem with how our society views situations like this is that people tend to focus on the benefit of what the less privileged party is supposedly getting so we hear say a young woman starts dating a powerful man and then they think oh well she's probably going to get a promotion and a raise and she's probably taking on vacations and maybe he's giving her an allowance and there's a lot of focus on um the assumed benefits of a relationship that has such a power differential but people don't focus on The other side of it, which Callie touched on, which is that that person, that woman, for instance, could end up having their career derailed. They could be blacklisted. Um, They could be put in a situation where they're now financially dependent on someone that they're not able to, 
you know, leave in multiple ways. Um, we, we think like, oh, being taken care of by somebody is this, this positive thing, but it just gets you further deeper ingrained into the other person having more and more control over you. And if that person is helping you financially and also has influence on your job, you are now, you, there's no way you can just exit that relationship if you feel that you don't want to be in it anymore, if you're not being treated properly, without now having a lot of obstacles to overcome. And so I think there needs to be a lot more dialogue in these situations to getting people to see the other side of these relationships. Because I just hear it all the time, especially in regards to women and young women. It's like, oh, they're climbing the ladder, right? And they're getting all these benefits and they're uh, young and attractive. So they're using that to get power. But what people get from these relationships is not power. And we need to really make sure that that's part of our discussion when talking about situations like this is that there's even in the in the beginning saying no to someone like this has consequences and so there may be these superficial benefits that you get to consenting to a relationship like this if you can call it consent which is debatable um but there's already there's already a danger in saying no and so how can we ever consider that you know an equal and fair relationship and if there's danger in saying no can that can there ever be true consent, consent exactly you know yeah. Yes. Def- very nicely yeah. said. Very nicely said. Yeah. I think you know we saw a lot of people saying oh, it's not a problem, so it's a problem. Yeah, and I just think we think that because the media has shown us that there's this like beautiful story of like a rich, powerful man like lifting a young <laughs> woman out of bad circumstances Barf. through their like romance. And that's what we think is happening most often. And that's just not the case. What is happening most often, if you look at the statistics and you actually listen to the the people who have been victimized by this situation is that they're so often put in situations where they're being hit on by people that they are not interested in and not knowing what to do about it because now their livelihood is essentially on the line because some person has like targeted them as an object of their affections or lust or whatever you want to call it, right? right? <laughs> so it's we want to think that it's all just like this beautiful cute romance when it's more often not right that and it it also um is one of those things where people also say like oh well this person consented in the beginning so everything that happened after that is their own fault um I hear that a lot like you know you get someone who's like a 19 year old intern Monica Lewinsky and consents to something And then everything that happens thereafter, people are like, oh, well, you willingly entered the relationship. And it's like, yeah, but again, there's these power dynamics at play. Even if you, and again, again, the consent is debatable, but even if you are into it in the beginning, that doesn't mean that everything that happens thereafter is your own fault. You know, relationships change. It can become more abusive. You can be young or inexperienced or hopeful or whatever and get into find yourself in the middle of a situation that has become unhealthy and then not have a good way out and so I think that's part of the dialogue too is that 
Because we hear that all the time, even with just one sexual encounter, right? Like if you consented to sex at some point during the night or you did things like go home with somebody, then you're consenting to everything that happened. And that's not how consent works. <laughs> but unfortunately, that is the commonly accepted kind of idea. And I think we need to understand that with relationships, too. Just because you get involved with, say, a powerful married man doesn't mean that you're consenting to you know, everything that happens thereafter. Moving on to the next development, uh, January 26th, nonprofitchronicles.com, which is a blog by this guy, Mark Gunther, who writes just about nonprofits. It's not about like slamming nonprofits. It sort of looks at all these angles, but this is someone that has covered a lot of what we're going to be talking about, and we'll see his name pop up again. But he wrote uh, the animal welfare movement's Me Too problem, and it talks a lot about uh, Wayne Pacelli, but it, it named Shapiro. So this is the first time we see Shapiro's name in something other than just a tagged Facebook post. Uh, but also really interesting, this is the first time in anything sort of officially written out, we see Nick Cooney pop up. So Nick Cooney is the former executive vice president of Mercy for Animals. He founded the Humane League, and he's also the author of several books. So this is someone that is pretty prominent within this movement. And so the article mentions him. It brings up the fact that in 2011, he was involved with a defamation lawsuit. And it actually links to sort of the the ruling on this lawsuit that anyone can go and look at. And I read through the whole thing as interesting to read through. Um, it talks about what exactly was being alleged against him. Um, he filed this defamation lawsuit, which is like a classic tactic, but uh, against two people, one organization, and 50 John Doe's, um, which I was not familiar with filing something against a John Doe. Essentially, that means you can just start a lawsuit even if you don't know who is particularly responsible, and then you can, during the discovery process, figure out who's responsible and just slot their name right in there. So uh, he left room for 50 names wow. to just get added Jeez. right into this lawsuit. <laughs> In it, the charges or like the allegations against him were, quote, uh, has a history of violence against women, including instances of physical, sexual and emotional violence against partners and other activists, uh, has threatened to and followed through on threats to cause physical harm to companion animals. And there's a couple other little things in there as well. The lawsuit was eventually ruled in his favor against one person. The other person involved, they, they settled out of court. I feel like at this point, I want to talk a little bit more about my partner's experience with dealing with this and, and what it, what does it mean when someone settles out of court? So at this point, I think before we move on, it might be helpful to talk a little bit about why people might settle out of court. Um, there are, of course, a myriad of reasons why someone would choose to settle out of court. And we're going to talk about one of them. I'm not saying that this is what happened here. We don't really know what happened here. Um, but the story I'm about to tell is one that is pretty common. So I think that regardless of if it applies to this particular case, it would be illuminating for us to go over it just a little bit. So I mentioned this briefly at the top of the show, but my partner was in a relationship that was emotionally and, and, and mentally and psychologically abusive. And she wrote her story. She posted it online and was hit with several different legal tactics, um, like a cease and desist and restraining order, and like all of these things basically to get her to take down her statement, to remove the name of the person involved. And it, it's a long drawn up process. She had to go to a courthouse that was not in the state that she lives in. So it involves taking off work, involves getting transportation, all of these things, spending several thousands of dollars to get to this point. And I think a lot of people, when they 
hear about this stuff. They're like, well, if he sues you, you get your day in court and you get to explain yourself and you get to prove that you're right. Um, a lot of people don't get their day in court. Um, and to get to that day in court, you're spending tons of time and money before a judge even sees a single piece of evidence against any one person. But unfortunately, with our legal system, even though it's not this way, people are presumed guilty. If you learn that someone has a restraining order against them, you're like, that person's probably a pretty bad person. And and so because of this, people get this tactic thrown against them. They get re-victimized over and over again, and they have to explain themselves to people that aren't well-versed in social justice. Why did you wait till this time to file? Are you just not a, a jealous ex-girlfriend? All of these things get repeatedly asked, and a person sort of repeatedly victimized has to explain themselves. And... And they can't talk about it. They can't publicly talk about it because it's a legal proceeding. So people get to this point where they just get so worn down and they would rather just settle and have it be done with and not have this horrible black cloud over their head um, before they even get to their day in court. And you don't know how that day in court is going to go. You don't know what the leanings of your judge are, if they're going to have sympathy for you or not, or if there's going to be like, you two are just bothering each other. You need to settle it and get out of here. Who, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. So so when we hear that someone settled out of court, these are the types of things that do happen. It, it, you can take from that what you will, but um, I think that it's definitely worth saying. Anyway, you can go look at it for yourself. We'll put a link in the show notes. Um, so Nick actually communicated with Mark, the author, and he wrote a defense of himself to uh, the author, which you can also read. The, the entire thing is linked in this article. We'll put a link in our show notes as well. We learned that he, in his defense, we learned he left Mercy for Animals in November of 2017. Uh, he says that it was due mainly to a difference of opinion with the lead staff, but he also acknowledges that in October of 2017, two women that were not MFA staff, and he says he didn't really know, but he had met them, uh, reached out saying they were going to talk to all MFA donors and ask them to stop donating until Nick left the organization. So he said it was like mostly the difference of opinion and like some that... Uh, and then he just basically sort of throws statistics out there and says, look at my perfect performance reviews. Look at um, this anonymous survey that was carried out after I left that gave me an 8.5 out of 10. Like everyone he worked with, he got surveyed. Um, interesting to note, the people that came out against him have already left the organization, so their voices are not included in those surveys. And basically just tries to say, like, statistically, look at how good of a guy I am. You know, it's like even if you have 100 people out there and you only – uh, abused one person statistically you're probably a pretty good guy right 99% of people really like you so I think that's also interesting to note and he also talks about how much his uh, <laughs> colleagues like him and, and as we're going to talk about later there's a lot of people that are really supportive and really like a lot of these people that have had some things that are pretty horrible come out against them uh, and finally this article also mentions Hugo Dominguez from Direct Action Everywhere and it's the only time I've seen this name pop up in these articles that we're going to be talking about. But it is interesting that all of this is coming out against sort of these larger welfare organizations and not so much grassroots organizations. But I think we should talk about that, too. Yeah, I definitely want to tackle that later. Um, here, I just want to note that um, this kind of reveals something that's very common with abusive people, which is that they know when and where and to whom to be abusive. And there's a huge misconception that if someone's public persona is, you know, beyond reproach, that there's no way that they're an abuser in private, but it's actually almost 
the opposite because an abuser knows how to put on, they know how to turn it on and turn it off. And that's also how you know someone is, um, you know, manipulative and actually an abuser because someone, because they're, they, they know from right and wrong because they know when to not do things is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just think it's a good conversation to have as well that this is part of this is part of the challenge for victims of abuse is that very often the person abusing them has public support and is commonly considered a good person. And so to come out with your own story, not only are you fighting against just the, the, the cultural misconceptions we have around abuse, um, but you're also basically ruining other people's image of somebody. You're trying to shatter that illusion of this this facade that this other person has put on for the public, and that is overwhelming. I mean, it's it's very difficult. And Kelly and I have talked at length on our own show about how we both had fathers that were like this. We had fathers who were very abusive at home, but out in public, every time I met someone who knew my dad, they would just talk about what a charming, nice man he was. And um, this is something that's very common in abusive people. They understand how to get an 8.5 out of 10 on a survey. You know, They know how to come across as a really good guy. And so we can't let things like this sway our opinion about somebody. And we have to stop and put aside our perception of someone and listen to what victims or survivors are saying and not be so personally invested in the idea of a person that we had um, as as taking priority over what we're, the information that we're receiving from someone else. Um, I think it's kind of a silly example just because it's so celebrity, but I think that we saw that with Johnny Depp, right? He, the allegations of abuse came out from his current, like his most recent wife, and then one of his ex-wives came forward to say, oh, he never treated me like that, so it can't be true. And even within domestic abuse, you can treat one spouse differently from another. Um, you can go through life and suddenly... Uh, some te- sometimes people start drinking and then they become abusive in ways they hadn't before. I mean, there's, you just can't ever base how someone treats an individual based on how they treat other people. Um, so I just want to highlight that as this is a very common tactic for abusers is to show what great public support they have, but that doesn't prove anything about who they are behind closed doors with different individuals. Yeah. And and on that note of sort of knowing when to abuse and when not to abuse, I think it's it's interesting to sort of look at the body of work that Nick has put out. Um, you know, the first book is called um, Change of Heart, The Psychology of Social Change. And it's all about how to manipulate people, essentially. You know, it's using it for good, of course, mm-hmm. but it's like it's all about how to get people to do what you want. So I think it's sort of interesting that, you know, you read into that whatever you want, but this is someone that's done a lot of work on learning about these things. That's a really great point. And I think it's very apt because we see a lot of these men are, you know, great at fundraising and they're great at networking and they're great at making those connections and making people like them. And I don't understand why more people don't connect that with, you know, effective manipulation, essentially, not to vilify people who are good at those things. But this is clearly someone who knows how to make people see them the way they want to. Um, And I'm not really sure why we consider that like this, this proof of, of goodness, instead of seeing it as like, oh, this person has a skill that would enable them to abuse people in secret more easily, because they're able to make people just see them the way they want, or even to, um, 
you know, see that they would be able to influence someone that they wanted to abuse much more effectively than someone who didn't have those skills, you know, make someone trust them and, and make someone think certain things of them. I'm just not sure why we, why we attribute this to them being a good person and not see that this would actually help facilitate abuse. Wow. And, and Nicole, I wanted to highlight something you said before too, when you said we like we have to put aside how maybe we feel personally about this person and and listen to what the the survivors have to say because for me at least this all of this stuff coming out is interesting because when we hear about this happening with celebrities even if we you know like even if we like these celebrities they're still like we have no personal relationship with these people but now for the first time it's like oh i have friends who are friends with these people like I don't know any of them personally but I'm still much more like closely related than any celebrity Mm -hmm. and I think for a lot of people it's very difficult to hear something happening about someone that you do know or someone that's one degree of separation away and you thought was a good person and it's I think that it is it's difficult for a lot of people to to come to terms with that and a lot of people just don't want to believe it simply for the fact that it's it's easy to vilify someone that you have no connection with but it's harder to be like shoot i like have had conversations with this person i go out to eat with lunch with this person like now it's 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 difficult for me to to kind of like cut those ties or or whatever it is but it's definitely this interesting uh dynamic to like know people who know these people rather than them being seven degrees of separation away. Yeah. Well, and I think a big reason that this is such a struggle, I think a big part of it is what Nicole talked about, this idea of like we don't really understand that um, people who are abusive or have uh, perpetrated abuse against other people are very good at knowing like who they can victimize and who they can't. Um, And that they do those kinds of things in secret. But another side of this coin is the fact that we still have this misconception as a society that people who are abusive or people who, um, you know, have harassed or assaulted or whatever are these like monsters that pop out of dark alleys, Mm -hmm. you know, so we don't we get really upset when we hear someone that we either, yeah, like um, Paul said, we may know by just one or two degrees of separation. We may have looked up to them. They may be a celebrity that we thought we kind of knew through their work and their social media presence. And we can't reconcile the image we have of them with this monster ideology that we have where this person, you know, if someone sexually assaulted someone, we, we want to think that only monsters do those kinds and of things strangers. and strangers. Yeah. That they're this like terrible person, you know, that they're the villain in the movie who's like not attractive looking. They're not nice. They like, they hide and they do these like creepy things. And it's, that's just not the case. There are right. people that perpetuate abuse look like the rest of us. They live lives. They have people that love them. They love people it's so we need to to drop this sense of like who these people are who abusers are because it's just making it harder for us to stand with victims and to challenge our culture of assault because we won't admit to ourselves that it could be anyone 
Absolutely. <laughs> You're not going to be able to see. It's not like in a movie where they're going to wear black clothes and like have an eye patch. Like you're not going to be able to tell at the grocery store who the like quote unquote villains are. You know? They're standing under a, a lamplight in the dark twirling their mustache. <laughs> yes. Yeah. People, I mean, it's like they don't think that, but they think that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, I know. That's they don't, what they want to think. Yeah, they don't realize that that's this idea that they have, you know? Yeah. And so that's why we struggle whenever it comes out that someone did something terrible. I mean, we look at the Brock Turner story, oh. right? And the media was even, even, I shared this on our Twitter recently, but even after he was convicted and found guilty of assault, they still use like, Harvard sw- or Stanford swimmer in the title of the article that was like convicted of assault. Not so convicted rapist. Right. <laughs> or, <laughs> rocked, like yeah. we still want to look at these people in like the best light, you know? Yeah. Because he, he looks like a nice guy. So like, you know, yeah. he just did a bad thing, you know? Because he can't be a monster. We can't admit that people that look like him could be monsters. Right. Yeah. And there's, of course, the added layer within this where it's like we're all a part of this movement. And and, and to be Mm, fair, I have never had that much faith in HSUS or whatever. You know, these aren't like my personal (laughs) heroes, I guess. But but they're within this movement. I want to believe that they're doing good and that in their own way. And and a lot of people they that's a, an extra factor because we don't want to hurt the animals when we talk about this stuff and and that yeah. that's another reason why people idolize them yeah absolutely, absolutely. yeah and i want to dig into that a little bit later this idea of what hurts the movement <laughs> yeah um there's a lot to unpack there <laughs> but it, it it's interesting it's an interesting yeah thing that we we put in front of all of these situations yeah you know well, it is definitely an added layer of complication. Yeah. Because these aren't just even regular people. These are people that care about justice and <laughs> yeah. compassion. How and can they care about justice and then be abusing people? That doesn't make sense. I know. Yeah. I think <laughs> that's, you know, why the Aziz Ansari, Ansari story was so complicated for a lot of people. Ugh. Because, one, everyone likes this guy. But also, he, he's the one that you expect to not do that. So Yeah. Can I just but. say that Master of None, The Cosby Show... And Louie were three of my favorite oh. things in the world. <laughs> and now they're all ruined yeah. forever. And no, but it's a good point. You know, the, these are these are people that said all the right things and they made media actually supporting like they they made media that actually confronted rape culture and, you know, promoted consent and <sighs> And yet still, you know, and it's just something that those were three people I had to let go of pretty immediately when these stories came out and just accept that despite the fact they had made things that I had loved and you could argue that they had done good, right, with the media that they had put out, they were still abusive men. Um, And that's really hard. It is really hard. You do lose something there. And I think as I think I would like to say for all the men or people who are not directly identifying with the the victims or survivors in these stories, to understand that for women, it's doubly hard because not only do you lose a hero, but you feel almost personally assaulted by the story itself. Because I, like, I read that Aziz story, the allegation, and 
I was like, I could have easily been that girl. I could have easily been that girl, especially at 22, meeting someone like him. I, you know, any, I just identified with her situation so much. And so you feel almost personally betrayed by the, by the person like Aziz. And then you also feel the personal impact of all the comments that come out, you know, talking about how it was an assault or it was her own fault or blah, blah, blah. Like you feel that personally. So I just want everyone who's like, oh, I don't want to give up, you know, I don't want to give up feeling nice about this person just to understand that for the people who identify with the victim, we have to do that same work. And we also self-identify. Um, so it's, you know, let's just like have compassion for everybody. It's just such a weird thing I see people use as a reason to not buy into what happened. And it's like, but we all, we have to do the same work and we have to overcome the fact that one of our heroes is someone who could have hurt us in a certain situation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. <sighs> This is depressing. <laughs> uh, let's yep. <laughs> keep, keep on marching down this timeline then. We're not, we're not yeah. even in February, and we've already had so much to say. Uh, January 29th, the Washington Post picks up the story. And this is the first time we see like a huge major publication starting to talk about this. And the headline is, Humane Society CEO is subject of sexual harassment complaints from three women, according to internal investigation. And so in this, we learn that it's not just one supposedly consensual relationship between one other person uh three women have come forward and and so this sort of just digs the hole deeper right there of course wayne denies all of the allegations Uh, and again we'll put the links to all this stuff in there i don't really feel the need to go into detail about specific allegations i don't think we really need to subject our listeners to that but um certainly not pleasant um and some of these articles go into much more detail January 30th, Politico picks it up, and the headline is Female Employees Allege Culture of Sexual Harassment at Humane Society. Uh, Subheadline, two senior officials, including the CEO, have been investigated for incidents dating back over a decade. So we find out, oh, this isn't just something that happened kind of recently in the last year or two. Uh, So this is the first time that we see much more details about Paul Shapiro's allegations, which include him suggesting one female employee, quote, take one for the team by sleeping with a donor. The article says um, about a year ago, six women made complaints to HR and a month later, Shapiro was moved to a new position at the company where he wouldn't have anyone working under him. And so it's like, okay, this is a common thing we see. People get shuffled around. We see that with like the, the Catholic church, right? Moving one, you know, so the priest to another location somewhere else. And apparently at no point was there any mention of why he got moved. And it was basically perceived as being a promotion to the, to the outside world. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Of course. Yeah. of course. And so at this point in this article, we learn that in November of 2017, Rachel Perman from Tofurky, who's the head of their charitable giving, emailed 31 board members from HSUS asking them to investigate the allegations. Because, again, these are things that are just sort of out there in, in the ether of the animal rights movement. People say things and, you know, it's, it's kind of out there, but it's not out there type thing. And um, no actions were, of course, taken. And in fact, one member of the board actually ridiculed her and said, are you out of your mind? Don't you have anything better to do in life than air your repressed sexual fantasies in public? Uh, asked by Politico for comment Tuesday, uh, Erica Brunson, who is the, the board member, did not retreat and said, this country is crazy. It's like this lynch burning hysteria. 
Uh, she suggested that women need to get tougher, oh. don't go around whining, saying you've been sexually harassed. So this is a board member of HSUS Jeez. Uh, that said that. So one, I want to say definitely props to to Rachel from Tofurky for trying to initiate this thing. Absolutely. Tofurky actually put in a really cool policy a little bit later on in December where essentially they said organizations must meet this certain criteria of having like a very well thought out sort of sexual harassment policy. Uh, We can talk about a little more later. I think have it somewhere in here, but I think it's great because they give a ton of money to animal organizations. And the fact that a lot of these organizations didn't have this kind of stuff in place Obviously, it's only as meaningful as it is enforced, but the fact that it's like not even there, I think that's like an awesome thing. Also on this day, January 30th, Patrice Jones publicly talked about the call. I mentioned this a little bit at the very beginning, but the call that happened the day before Carol Adams outed Paul Shapiro. And I'm just going to read Patrice's comment here. In the course of the call, Paul did acknowledge the accuracy of the charges lodged against him at HSUS, although he called his behavior in one case inappropriate, but not in advance when the women did experience his behavior as advances. At no point did he demonstrate empathy for or even awareness of the feelings of that woman or the other women he hurt. Throughout the call, Paul's focus was on himself rather than on the women he had hurt or the hurtful impact of his acts on the organizations for which he worked. And then, same day, January 30th, Paul Shapiro released a public statement. Uh, Interestingly, it's really weird how he released it. It's a PDF of what (laughs) appears to be a letter that was, like, printed out and scanned in (laughs) and then put into a Dropbox link that he then posted on his Facebook page. (laughs) Just very bizarrely obscured. I don't know what (laughs) algorithm he was trying to work with there to make sure as few people as possible saw it. Now, this was publicly available. It was a public post on his Facebook page. As of the time of this recording, it appears that he's actually taken it down. But the link to that Dropbox still works. So for anyone that's interested in checking it out, we'll include it in the show notes and we'll see how long it's available for. He, of course, does not take responsibility or acknowledge exactly what he has done or how he plans to fix it. The closest he comes taking accountability, he wrote... In years past at my previous job, I sometimes acted inappropriately, for which I'm deeply sorry. I engaged in sophomoric and unprofessional behavior. I should have known better and sincerely regret my thoughtless and poor decisions. So he just thinks he's just made some bad jokes, essentially. That's kind of what I got from that. In the midst of all this, uh, same day, January 30th, uh, Rick Bernthal, who's the chair of the board at HSUS, sends an email out to all of his deputy directors telling them to focus on their work. I feel like you two will dig into this because I know how much you love talking about how corporations are the worst. (laughs) He wrote, now more than ever, our mission as an organization needs to be top of mind. Each of us needs to set anxiety and uncertainty aside and recommit personally to our work for animals. This is the passion and commitment that we all share, and it's where we need to redouble our time and attention. (laughs) No, no, no. Fuck no. Okay. We'll probably get into this more later too, but there was a hint of this. I believe uh, you also mentioned earlier where it's this idea that talking about these things damage our movement. You know what actually damages our fucking movement when we're abusing one another. Okay. Talking about it and outing it and making sure that this community is a safe space for people who aren't white, privileged, cis, hetero dudes is 
important. Like, what the fuck? Why do the, why do we feel like the animals are being harmed by taking any time to make sure that we're not harming each other? If we're not operating at our best, then we cannot be the best advocates that we can for animals. And I hate to even say that because I shouldn't have to appeal to people as like, and as advocates for animals and say like, well, we'll do better work if we're all functioning at our best. Like it shouldn't fucking matter. Mm-hmm. Like it should only matter that we're not abusing each other. And yep. this whole fucking idea that these allegations and these conversations and giving your staff the time and emotional space to process this shit is like bad for the movement, bad for the animals, bad for the company. Go fuck right the fuck off. <laughs> I have no time for any of this. Yes, girl. I mean, seriously. I know. I completely agree with you. Because all of these people are getting their statements heard, right? The men that are being accused, the heads of company that are coming out and imploring their staff to continue working, they're getting to be heard. They're getting their agenda out there. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that get to set the tone. No, y'all are not the ones being harmed by this, so shut the fuck up. (laughs) Take several seats. We'll tell you (laughs) when you can stand back up. All right? But Kelly, they are being... I know, though, I'm being very sexist towards (laughs) you right now. There's a lot of reverse sexism (laughs) in your statement. Also, I want to point out that these men are being hurt. We have a very punitive environment right now, well, so they are the ones who are being hurt. This is just a really terrible witch hunt, is what's going uh, on right now. Uh, I can't, I can't, I can't. But yeah, yeah, just the, the message from corporations that, I mean, why isn't it like, hey, let's provide support for our staff, let's provide a space if anyone else has stories they need to disclose, and let's, as a community, work on updating our policies and procedures for when these things happen. No, it's just, hey, we don't want to hear any of you talking about this stuff, and you need to just, you know, put the, the face of the company as a priority and keep moving forward. And it's this idea that, like, white dudes are the norm, that they're the standard, that anything that doesn't center them is like damaging or bad or a waste of time. It's like, y'all are not the only people in this movement. Like, it's not bad to acknowledge that there are people with different experiences. Yeah. You know, but we think like, anything that isn't a problem for them isn't a problem that needs to be discussed. And the the vegan movement is mostly women, FYI, mm-hmm. but even if it wasn't, we're at least half <laughs> of the population, <laughs> not to mention the fact that there are, like, people of color and people that are queer and non-binary and trans and all of these people that are affected by this stuff. But it's cool, no. It's just yeah. business as usual. Yeah, it... <laughs> It reminds me of there was an incident where like George uh, Bush, George W. Bush sent like a letter to the troops in the field that was like, you have to pledge and like pray for the president. And they're the ones that are out there like getting killed and he needs them to pledge allegiance to the president. (laughs) And you're just like, what? Like, what is going on? It's just, do you not realize that people are going through horrible things and you're just like, you just need to focus on your job. Oh my God. And again, the short-sightedness that our jobs and our performance isn't being affected by any of this other stuff. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, everyone talks about people coming forward about this are hurting the animals, but no one's like, oh, they're hurting the animals because they're risking the reputation of the organization. Uh, the reason that I brought up that Humane Watch thing earlier, which is, you know, the group designed to attack HSUS, is because look at all the ammo it has given them, the fact that these people abused women. You know, it, it's they're mm-hmm. having a field day with it. There's article after article calling them out and pretending like there's some progressive voice for women in the movement. But really, they know it's just because they're trying to drive things home and hurt it as much as possible. And it's like, who gave them that ammunition? It's the people that perpetrated abuse in the first place. And all of the people that were complicit in covering Absolutely. it up. Yeah, that that's such a good point that you make, Andy. And that's so often forgotten. Like... The people who are abusing are the ones doing the damage, not the people that are calling it yeah, out. Absolutely. And of, and of course, you know, again, how many people have been driven away because of this? How many people are losing because of this? Um, I think, Paul, you bring yeah. this up all the time. You're like, there's no one person that's going to make the world vegan. Like, no one is more important than, like, a healthy, like, culture I suppose you could, you know, phrase it like mm-hmm. that. Like no one, there's no one that's the savior of everything. And there's a million people, not a million. There's a lot of people that could step up <laughs> <laughs> and take his place. Yeah. We do have this idea though, that, um, someone who rises to prominence is like irreplaceable. You know, we see this in social justice movements. We also see this a lot in celebrity culture, right? Like if a, if a celebrity is outed as being someone who was like abusive or whatever, and we think like, oh, but their work is so good. And it's like, like there's not thousands of people lined up behind them that could have done the work. Yeah. Well, you think about that as being, that's like a common trope in pop culture. The one, even though I love it, it's like the matrix, that story that's replicated forever. It's there's this huge resistance of people, but they need the one to come in and do the one thing that no one else can do. Even though they have thousands of people. And it's just something that gets replicated over and over and over again. And we got to kill that idea in our movement, I think. No heroes. Yes. (laughs) Except Andrew WK. Oh, careful now. He's going to be the next to go. (laughs) I know. I know. All right. All right. So uh, January 31st, Washington Post publishes a story that says Humane Society donors calling for firing of chief chief executive after sexual harassment complaints. And this talks a lot about um, the Tofurky move, but also talks about a few other high profile donors that say they're going to pull out. So it's like, okay, we think something's going to happen. All this. That's what makes people listen. They're going to lose all their funding and their money. Uh, Gizmodo publishes a story the same day. And then on February 1st, a day after the, uh, that the board chair said, everyone work, we're taking your concerns seriously. Washington Post publishes Humane Society keeps CEO after sexual harassment complaints, prompting seven board members to resign. So their investigation, they said, yeah, we think it's fine. Everything's cool. And we're going to keep Wayne. And I guess it was very heated with the board. Seven people, as I mentioned, resigned. But that means the other people did not. And you're like, how many of them share the views and opinions of Erica Brunson that I quoted earlier? That was like a flip the table moment on Facebook when that happened. Oh, I should mention that a few people launched petitions to get Wayne to resign at that point. But they wouldn't have to pursue it for long because on February 2nd, New York's ti- the New York Times published Humane Society CEO resigns amid sexual harassment allegations. He wrote this letter to his staff. He put it out on Facebook and basically doesn't 
accept any responsibility and does not apologize at all. And uh, our favorite board member, Erica, comes back for comment. And she said, uh, Mr. Paselli had done nothing wrong. Quote, which red-blooded male hasn't sexually harassed somebody? She added, women should be able to take care of themselves. Um, And then on Friday, she resigned from the board. So it's it's our problem that, quote-unquote, every red-blooded male sexually harasses. Not that they should stop sexually harassing, that we should just learn how to deal with it better. Yeah. I see. Yeah. I see. Men are like... (laughs) Babies with bank accounts. They just can't... They just don't know how to control their impulses or navigate life. So we just have to put bumpers on everything for them and just make sure they don't get hurt. Would y'all like to wait? <laughs> We're just floating around, bumping on the bumpers and occasionally sexually harass someone. It's just what happens. Yeah, it's just part of life. I, I don't really understand how they don't... Like, I wish all of the, like, MRA-type people would fight against this type of stuff, right? And be like, no, like, we as men are not, like... Babies. Yeah, we're not forced to follow these, like, quote-unquote, like, urges or, like, biological stuff. Like, we have control of ourselves. Yeah, we're adults. We're able to, like, rise above this, like, idea that... You know, we're basically like animals that can't control ourselves. <laughs> you know, like I know. it's such a weird, uh, well, and it's such a weird, weird thing to me. It's such a weird ju- juxtaposition too, from what they're saying, which is these men are indispensable to the movement because they're so charismatic and they're so intelligent and they've like accomplished so many great things. And yet, on the flip side of that, they also simultaneously are unable to control their urges mm-hmm. and like have to abuse people because that's part of their nature. And it's like, how do both of those things add up? And that men are make better leaders than women. We can't put women in control of things because they're emotional and not logical. And yet we also are saying like, yeah, but men can't even control like these quote unquote, like base animal urges. Right. Yeah. But that, no, that's, that's so insulting to trade-off. men. I know <laughs> it is insulting to men. I know. Yeah. But a lot of men like it because it gives them carte blanche to just do what they're going to do, especially Ugh. wealthy men. Gosh, I know. It's so upsetting. I just want to say quickly before we move on in the timeline that um, I posted about this on our Twitter, but the Washington Post in their article where they say that they just, the board decided not to fire Wayne Passell, that they like kept him on even though the next day he ended up um, leaving. The picture they used as like the thumbnail on the article was a picture of Wayne sitting at his desk, leaning over, like petting a dog that was laying on a blanket and he had like a smile on his face. And it was just like this quintessential image of like this guy who's like such a giver and nice and caring and look at him being like cute to an animal. Like he's so gentle and sweet. (laughs) It's like the headlines like, CEO dog lover accused, you know? Yes, exactly. (laughs) Baby hugger and puppy lover. (laughs) And I, this is how we perpetuate this idea that these people can't have done anything wrong Mm -hmm. because look at how nice they are. Like, Mm -hmm. look, he's not mean to dogs. Of course he doesn't abuse women. (laughs) Obviously. Right? Right. So... 
I called out uh, Washington Post on Twitter. They have not responded. Apparently, they don't know how important we are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With our, like, 100 Twitter followers or something. <laughs> we are not Twitter famous, that's for sure. We're both I, like, how do you use this flipping thing? Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand this platform. <laughs> I, I definitely noticed a lot of people, a lot of people, I noticed that a lot of people noticed how absurd some of the photos that they chose, because it wasn't just that. It wasn't just that post. It was like no. every post of him was just him like holding an animal. And it's such a it was really like a truly strange choice of I mean, for all I know, these people like the people, the authors were just quickly Googling his name and choosing the first picture. But it was like all like that. And and not just one picture. It was like different pictures of him holding animals. And it's really like it was really bizarre. And and this happens a lot. They did the same thing with Brock Turner. In fact, I put in my post the two next to each other where they had the headline after Brock Turner was convicted. So even all the people that come out and say like, well, it's just alleged at this point. Like, no, he was convicted and they're still referring to him as like, you know, Stanford swimmer or whatever. (laughs) And showing his smiling like school photo. And it's like, (laughs) the, the picture that they used for like the very first thing that came out that was just like, he had a relationship with an employee is him like looking knowingly at a cat. Like it's this close up thing. And like multiple people were like, is the relationship with the cat? Like (laughs) such a weird photo choice. (laughs) Yeah. Like, it's like a very close up. They're pretty close together. And he's just like, so awkward. That is awkward. But this is the way that the media perpetuates, like, you know, this idea of these people being like good guys, you know, that this is like a mistake or poor choices because we show them in the best light. We give them the benefit of the doubt. And I just couldn't live with myself here if I didn't comment on the fact that the media does this usually for rich, powerful white men. And yet we have stories where, you know, you see like a person of color or a woman and they pick the worst (laughs) photo of them. Right. And they use headlines that are very colorfully (laughs) oppressive, (laughs) should I say, (laughs) and abusive. Right. You know, like you'll have Wayne Passell, like, looking adoringly at a dog and then you'll have someone who say like stole diapers for his baby and they're calling him like convicted yeah you know thief and they're showing like a mugshot yeah exactly <laughs> so it there there is it's not on accident that these things are happening that they are choosing who to show as like innocent nice guys and who they are wanting to show as like villains yeah, and it's there's a maybe an irony perhaps to the fact that a lot of victims and survivors have to come out anonymously because they're putting a lot at risk by coming out. And so there's a strange thing that happens where their if their identity is known, then they're then they're usually shown in a poor light like Callie was just saying, and if they're not able to be out, then they just get kind of anonymized and yet the person who's being accused is deeply humanized in the media it's just this very strange thing that happens or the person who actually had something bad happen to them is the one who is not humanized Mm -hmm. you know yeah and I mean that's that's by design 
Right. That we're, again, supposed to, I, we say this on the show all the time, but like, we're constantly conditioned to love bad daddy, whoever bad daddy is, you know, like we're constantly conditioned to look at abusive men and see and empathize with them and excuse their behavior. And this is just part of that conditioning that, oh, this person was accused of doing something bad, but like, look how, look at this sweet and soft side of him, you know, and then the victim is, is either erased or has, you know, perceptions of their character drawn out in the media as negative and making them untrustworthy. Well, yeah, I had never thought about that, the sort of the effect of the the victim being anonymized like that. And I understand, you know, why some people, you know, sometimes people choose to remain anonymous, but sort of the effect of that, obviously, in this case, there's the media bias. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I wonder, I wonder how that balance can be struck of, sort of humanizing the person that had the horrible thing happen to them. This is also like respecting their privacy. I think we need to put the focus more on the, the abuser, you know, and let, and let, and stop trying the victim. You know, we put the victims on trial and I know there's been, you know, legal things that have happened in the last few years where we, you know, we let victims stay anonymous and we, there's, I think supposed to be protections against like, you know, being able to discuss their sexual history and those sorts of things so that they can't kind of be painted as, you know, a whore, like the media and, um, like, defense attorneys sometimes like to do, right? Paint them as, like, immoral so that it doesn't seem... A harlot. <laughs> right, a harlot. <laughs> Just paint them with a scarlet A and call it a day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but, yeah, we need to, like, shift the focus away from you know, the survivors and more onto like what the abuse is and how it keeps happening in society, like how society is encouraging it and also talk about like the perpetrator of it. Yeah. And I did want to get into this a bit later in terms of, you know, how do we make things better and what do we do with these stories? But I'll just say here that I think a big part of it is we need to take character out of the equation So we need to stop trying to prove who's a good person and who's a bad person with this because that actually doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if the victim is a fucking asshole, right? Like, it doesn't matter. Something bad happened to them and, you know, there's some restorative justice that's needed, which we can talk about in a bit as well. Um, And I think that's where we really go wrong um, is that we, we almost set up, it's like, okay, this story's out. But now we need to determine who's a better person and that person gets more of our compassion and empathy and belief than the other person. And that's that's not really how these situations should be handled at all, because at, at the end of the day, it doesn't it doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter. Like someone's character, so to speak, isn't factoring into the situation of what, what happened and how do we how do we make it whole? I, I also feel like I, I feel I think I see this more with people that are being outed as abusers in the entertainment industry less so in in the animal movement but the whole piece about how oh it, this is going to destroy someone's career and and yeah. how people kind of use that to to justify the person's innocence mm. which like to me doesn't make any sense because what happens in the future doesn't change what happened in the past or what's currently happening in the present. So I, I feel like those things, it's like, yeah, they, it, it may happen, but it shouldn't have any impact on whether or not we, we trust 
that's that this thing already happened in the past. So I feel like it even yeah. even subconsciously it biases people to want to not believe what happened. And and again, it doesn't make sense because it's like saying this thing that's happening in the future alters what we think happened in the past. Yeah, that's a great point, Paul. And I think it also it perpetuates this idea that there's some magical equation to figuring out like if the if the victim's like life is worth the other person's career. Yeah. You know, there's just this bizarre math that starts to happen that like, oh, is it is the victim who came out worthy of, you know, destroying this person's career, taking away this person's privilege. And again, that's not that's not the math that we should be doing and I, um in these situations. And I think maybe in the in the in the animal rights community, in the math in the this I love my equations, in the equation like uh <laughs> w- will the person the variable that's will the person's career be destroyed is replaced with what did this person do for the animals? Because that's what people And what will they yeah. do? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, such a good point. Nicole had this whole rant. I can't remember if it was just to me or on the show last week, but you were talking about reputation. Yes. And this idea of like someone's reputation being harmed is like this terrible thing. And we should be so worried about like someone who's accused of something having their reputations tarnished. And Nicole was just like, but isn't that what reputation is? Like the actions that they've taken and if they have abused someone, shouldn't their reputation then change? I was like, like I don't understand why we're protect like I'm like, that's what reputations were made for. Right. It's like so you know how this person behaves in certain situations. It's just so weird to me. I just never thought about it like that before. Yeah. That's such a good point. Thank you. <laughs> Like, we need to protect someone's reputation against people that are actively being harmed by their actions. Yeah, we have to... Like, that's more important. Yeah, the message is we have to protect this person's reputation against the things that they've done. (laughs) And I'm like, but but that's what a reputation is. It's basically a log of the things that you've done. And whether or not they were harmful or beneficial. Yeah, it's like a rolling... There's just some magical spreadsheet in the sky. (laughs) I mean, right? Or Santa. If I believed in heaven, that might be my idea. (laughs) See, there's Santa or God is keeping that tally. I'm such an Excel nerd. I would love that. You would love that. (laughs) Just God up in the... Just Santa up in the sky going, "Mm mm-hmm. And like checking things off as people do that stuff. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but he's got to also use formulas because yeah. I don't mess around with people who only use like Excel manually. Oh, <laughs> bit of an Excel snob, are you? I am. <laughs> You're very proud of it. I claim that. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, now that we've gotten completely tangent time. Yeah. Okay. All right. So yeah. starting at the end of January, the beginning of February, we start to notice uh, yes. Most of the major animal activist nonprofits start pu- publishing these policies. Um, I'm not entirely sure how many of them just didn't exist and are just now being sort of made to be a public show or how many are just sort of being put in place. But uh, everything with Tofurky sort of leads me to believe that a lot of them were not in place beforehand. Could be wrong on that. Anyway, mm. uh, I'll post links to all of them, but Vegan Outreach, Humane League, uh, Mercy for Animals, Encompass, Compassion Over Killing, and Compassion World Farming all released various statements and sort of released what their new policies are. Oh, uh, Better Eating did as well. 
and some of them might read a little bit hollow once we find a little bit more about some of these organizations <laughs> later on. Um, I didn't find anything from PETA unless it came out later, but wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> well, how could they have a policy <laughs> like, that would basically like remove all of their yeah. tactics? Yeah, their policy, their policy. Like they would put themselves out of business. <laughs> their policy is just like the garbage emoji with a fire emoji next to it. <laughs> That's their official policy. Uh, we also got the Tofurky discrimination policy up there. Uh, and we learned that um, Rachel Perman put this in place after seeing Lauren Ornellis from Food Empowerment Project speak at the Animal Law Conference in October of 2017. Yeah, so credit to Lauren right there. Tofurky put that policy in place December 12th of 2017. Uh, all right. Fast forward to February 6th. A woman comes out with her story about working with Nick Cooney, uh, and it states that he is emotionally abusive and manipulative. On February 7th, uh, we noticed that Paul Shapiro finally untags himself from Carol Adams' post. So that was like the, the, the thing that started this whole thing. He was tagged in it for so long, and I, I, multiple people were just wondering, why is he leaving himself tagged up in there? <laughs> and uh, it... Maybe he didn't know he could untag yeah. <laughs> himself. Because by this point, it's just ridiculous. It's like, Paul, it's like way yeah. too late. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like at this point, just yeah. leave it. <laughs> too bad the screenshots exist. Got re- got, we got receipts. <laughs> right. Um, so to me, this is kind of evidence that now he's trying to control the narrative. Uh, he... Yeah, he eventually then makes the, the the public statement, the one that was buried in the Dropbox. He made that friends only. So if you go to his page, you have no idea he's even making any sort of basic kind of apology that's going on. Uh, and I shouldn't even say apology because it certainly was yeah, not it's really loose, that at all. Loose term. <laughs> in quotation marks. <laughs> There's a lot of that yeah. going around. <laughs> February 7th, uh, Josh Balk, he is the person that took over Shapira's position at HSUS. Um, and is sort of friends with a lot of people involved, makes a public statement. A lot of people have been making statements. A lot of men, I should say, are making statements of allyship and being feminists and um, I would say vague platitudes about doing better and usually nothing specific. And I know we're definitely going to dig into that, but I want to bring up Josh's specifically because he is a public figure. He took over Paul's position. And I don't know, I just kind of noticed a lot of people just sort of falling all over themselves to heap praise upon <laughs> this statement. And it was pretty much all positive. And uh, Josh is interacting with the posts and liking the comments. And then I commented, hey, I, I know a lot of people look up to you and you're, you know, a lot of people like the work you're doing. I think you could set a great example if you listed what specific steps you, you're going to take to sort of rectify this and prevent it from happening in the future. Immediately he stops interacting with the post. Carol Adams jumps in there. Marla Rose jumps in there. And from that point on, there is no more interaction whatsoever with the post. And I, this seems to be a pattern with a lot of people making these statements. When someone asks, what are you going to do? Are you going to take accountability? A lot of people brought up great questions. Like you're friends with all these people. You say you want to do better. Does that mean that you helped out the investigation against Wayne and and Paul? And it, it, what does this mean? It, you know, it's basically like the version of someone that's like, we need to fight racism. And you're like, OK, cool. Yeah. Who, aside from Nazis, cannot agree upon that statement? Like, what specifically <laughs> are we going to do to fight? Ra- you know, it's just kind of rings like that. Um, 
So we see a, a, a plethora of these people, including people that work at MFA and Humane League and whatnot. February 8th, another woman comes forward about Nick Cooney. This time, the allegations include sexual harassment. February 8th, also, Nathan Runkle, the former head of Mercy for Animals. Uh, now he's just on the board, but obviously he sort of has a prominent role in steering everything. Makes a statement on the first person that came forward about Nick um, on, on her post, but not on his personal page, um, just sort of buried in the comments. And it's, again, kind of more of the same. It's, it takes a little bit more accountability, but it doesn't really address... Did I know what was happening with Nick? Did I hire him when I knew all this stuff was happening? What, you know, like really taking true accountability for all of this. And then also on February 8th, it's been noticed that Alex Hershaft, who is the head of Farm, and that's the organization that puts on the Animal Rights Conference, made a post in support of Wayne from HSUS. And he said, Wayne, you have my continued admiration and gratitude for all you've done for animals. We have not always agreed on strategy, but I have never doubted your vision and, f- and good works. I am really sorry about how they've treated you, but I know that you have the strength of character to persevere in your life's mission. Let me know if I can help in any way. That pissed off a lot of people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Including me. And, and, and uh I'm just going to jump to this last date before we go back and talk about this. February 9th, another article was posted at nonprofitchronicles.com, which said, at mercy for animals, no mercy for women. And yes. yes. So, uh, yeah, I feel like MFA kind of skated by for a little while, and it was just kind of like, well, there's this guy, Nick, that is no longer there. And now people are starting to sort of turn the attention on MFA. Like, well, he was hired in, was it 2011? And he's been there for a while. So who knew? basically the question is, what did they know and when did they know it, sort of? Um, so I'm going to read a little bit from this article. It says, the timeline is important. One woman's troubles began in 2016 and another in 2015. Both say they told managers about the problems with Cooney, who left MFA in November, only after donors complained about his behavior. The women weren't alone in suffering abuse from Cooney, insiders say. Christina Hedema, a vice president at MFA, said... Sadly, uh, these two women are in good company. There are many other women who have similar experiences with Nick. I think that that whole article is worth mentioning. And it, it sort of brings to light, what about the board at MFA? And it points out that everyone that's on the board is also someone that works at MFA or is like a, you know, a part of the club, used to work there. There's no outsiders. Up, during this time, there's no women on the board. There's no people of color on the board. Um, that has since changed a little bit. But There were no women on nope. the board? It was just... Are you fucking kidding? <laughs> it was just Nathan Runkle, uh, Matt Rice, who is the guy that took over Nathan's place when he, he left MFA, and Derek Coons, who is the other founder of MFA with Nathan. And those were the three people that were on the board. So Nathan was on the board and the head of the organization? Yes. And there is like the a time. great line in this article towards the end that essentially just said, like, because um, both Matt Rice, who is now head of MFA, and Nick Cooney responded, and those responses are included in the article. Like, it came out, and then they responded, so they've been amended to the end of this article. But towards the end of the original writing, it said that, you know, they're working to change it and diversity is of the utmost importance. And the article says, to one to which one must ask, 
since when. Great I burn. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> so just all burn. fire emojis. <laughs> yeah. So aside from a few other just sort of random public statements from people and donors and whatnot, those are all what I think are pretty much the most notable things on this timeline. So with that said, I, I turn over this timeline into our collective podcast. And where do you where do y'all even want to start? You want to start with uh, Alex Hershaft's statement? I mean, I guess so. But all I really have to say is like, Alex Hershaft is a pile of flaming shit. And I wish I would never see or hear from him ever again. Mm-hmm. He was garbage when I went to AR conference a couple years ago. He clearly is even worse than I thought he was. <laughs> he is making statements in support of mm-hmm. these perpetrators of abuse for no reason. Like, there was no reason he even need to make that comment. Right. Yeah. Like, when you think about it, for what purpose is it besides just, like, spitting in the face of any of the people that have come forward? I feel like he's just trying to maintain some semblance of relevance because recently Farm and Compassion Over Killing merged and basically everything went to Compassion Over Killing. Farm just has the conference. So I feel like he sort of sees himself being pushed out and he's trying to maintain his good old boys club with the other people that have been sort of at the top of the food chain for a while. And it's, it just seems so desperate. And, you know, I am someone I used to full disclosure, I used to work for Farm. So I had a lot of sort of inside view of the conference. And I saw all the problems and I feel like I like I knew how hard a lot of people were working to change things. Uh, um, I would say not hard enough, but I also knew that that her shaft was kind of this tyrannical force that made getting anything done almost impossible. But because I sort of saw the inner conflict, I was like, oh, maybe there's still a chance. And now after last year's conference, almost everybody left the organization. And I just feel like there's no hope whatsoever. And I, I feel, you know, I feel like we've talked, Paul and I have talked gently about it in the past and there's no reason to do so. It's just, like you said, it's just a flaming pile of garbage at this point. <laughs> I feel like that comment is just so out of touch too. It's like even, even the other like heads of these organizations that probably knew that this stuff was going on at this time, even they're like gently pushing these things away. Like, Oh, we we kind of like want to separate ourselves and make us seem like the good guys, even though we know that like we knew all this stuff was going on, but he's just like fully embracing it. And it just seems like a, like a, from a, like a, I don't, I don't know what the, I, I know there's a word for what I'm thinking of, but it just seems like a terrible like even if this is what he believes it's like a terrible pr move for him and and i don't understand why he would even do it even if that's what he thinks because that's what i mean i that's an absolutely a fair question but this is the problem men like this who have maintained so much power they literally can't see beyond that mm. he doesn't think that he owes anyone anything he thinks he's right he he thinks he's in the majority yeah people have not um challenged him i mean i know people have pushed back and there were people within farm and working outside of farm that were trying to get him to change but to a certain extent we've kind of allowed him to maintain his 
spot as a leader. And so he literally just thinks he's like untouchable. Mm -hmm. And this is what happens when men like this that have problematic beliefs and we make excuses for them and we look past their bad deeds and we say like, oh, but like, look what he's gone through. Look at like what he's done for the animals. And they just perpetuate harm and oppression. And so of course he doesn't think, he doesn't know that this is a bad PR move because he thinks he's right. He's like so far above this that he doesn't even see how far up his own ass his head is yeah like he just he doesn't even know we have gotten some kind of inside information on him that we can't disclose for multiple reasons but I can just say that the stories that we've heard all point to that that he is someone who truly believes that he's right and that all of this stuff happening is ridiculous. And he just, he has in no way absorbed any modern beliefs around, you know, any of it. Sexual harassment, understanding other people's viewpoints. He he is not in that mindset at all from, you know, anything he's done publicly. That comes across very clearly that this is all a joke to him. And when he posts these things, he really feels like he's putting a call out to like-minded people. And he believes that that, that those are the majority people. Um, he's just very out of touch, really. And he's allowed to be out of touch. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, Andy, I think that's what you're trying to get at here is that is there any redemption here for the conference? Is there any redemption here for someone who... just is still functioning the same way he always has and has been allowed to. And I agree. I don't, I don't think that there is. And we had a conversation with someone who was an employee at farm after we publicly criticized them on the podcast, um, the conference. And one of the things that came through, one of the things that we suggested was does the conference need to be so big? Because I think that's where a lot of problems are coming in is that when you have something that is that large and that high profile, then you need you need money to support it. So you need to get in those big donors and you need to give the donors a stage. And um, people who can't afford to go, people you know, who can't afford to table there, um, People who have been blacklisted and not allowed to attend, now they can't afford a ticket. People who haven't been allowed to speak there, excuse me, to have their expenses covered, now can't afford a ticket to get in to still be a dissenting voice or a voice, you know, that's presenting a different viewpoint. So you get this echo chamber of people who have access and then you keep people out who don't. And um, there is very much an attitude of, no, the movement needs this. The movement needs to show the world that the AR movement's this big, you know, and this is really important. And that's something we can talk about now or later. But I think um, something for me that's come through with all of this is the idea of consolidation of power and how that just inherently creates a system where you're going to have people pushed aside for the greater good, and then you're going to have people who have too much privilege and have too much say in the industry that they're in. You know, I don't understand how Hershaft got to where he is, especially given how fucking problematic he is. I haven't, you know, researched his career to see how Farm got so big, but it's he's double down, triple down. I mean, he's not he's not going to move. So we have to decide as a community if it's worth it to have this big conference where it's mostly one viewpoint that's being given a platform or if it's more powerful for us to say no 
and I'll, you know, boycott it, let it die the death it needs to, whatever, and decide that there are other things that are more important for the the movement than just having a big conference. Yeah. I mean, I think farm, I don't even know if I would say farm is that big necessarily, but they were one of the first. And I think that's honestly the only reason why mm-hmm. they have any relevance right now. You know, certainly a lot of people have come in and tried to sort of reform things and make it more relevant. But I, you know, when I talk to people that are like, have been vegan for a while and they know about MFA and vegan outreach and, you know, PNHSUS, people don't know who farm is really. And I think if they didn't have this conference, it would pretty much just fade away into obscurity at this point. I totally agree. Cause I knew nothing about them before Callie went to the conference and then told me about it. Mm-hmm. I hadn't really heard of them. So yeah, I think I agree. I think for people coming in now, they're not really the source of whatever that they influence that they were. But the problem, and I agree with you, farm itself may not be known, but when we've allowed one event to become so elevated above every other event and become like the one kind of unifying occurrence of everyone coming together and you have someone like Alex Hershaft in charge of it and not listening to the criticisms or calling in of the people around him, he's able to choose speakers. He's blacklisted people from attending that disagree with him. Um, He puts himself on like every fucking panel. He put himself on a fucking like intersectionality panel and argued against two women like he and made himself the last speaker so he basically let them talk and then was like yeah fuck everything they just said Mm -hmm. essentially that's what he did Mm -hmm. so this is what happens when we allow hero worship and when we like we lose touch with our like radical progressive roots you know we get comfortable and complicit in this like mainstream idea of what veganism needs to be and like he farm may not be well known, but farm has been shaping the conversation in mainstream AR for years upon years. And that's the part that people don't see mm-hmm. because they think, well, Alex Hershaft, if you don't agree with him, then just ignore him. But he is picking speakers. He's allowed to reject speakers. He is deciding who it looks like the movement is. And that's why the movement seems very white and privileged and male, you know? Absolutely. Because that's what we're seeing at that conference. That's not what the movement truly is, but that's what people think because of people like him. So I just, we need to be willing to, to like make hard choices, you know? And as much as vegans, you know, we speak out against people who are not willing to give up um, animal products and we look down on people that aren't able to make these quote unquote sacrifices, but a lot of us aren't willing to do it within our own movement. You know, we're willing to let, we're unwilling to let go of people like Nick Cooney because he knows how to write a book. You know, (laughs) we're unwilling to let go of organizations like farm and PETA and, you know, because they bring big money to the table or they throw a big event. Yeah, yeah, definitely it. And Andy, I think you were going to touch on this, or you mentioned this earlier, but it does bring up the idea of the efficacy of grassroots um, organizations and movements and efforts. And 
I, I th- for me personally, I think there needs to be a reprioritization of what smaller groups can do and are doing versus us thinking that these big splashy things are inherently good for the movement and for veganism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely tough because as we know, doing activism and it can take many forms, but it takes a lot out of you. And so I think we all see that there could be an immense value in someone who is paid full time to only do that. It's not like they get home from their, their job and then they have to go do activism. But then we get into this situation where people have to appease donors. Um, You know, there's someone who is a, a donor right now that's, I would say not necessarily in the right, but I think a lot of who's made statements about everything going on, but I don't think, a lot of organizations would be willing to to call them out. Um, I know that there's other big donors that have also shaped the, you know, the conference and demanded that certain things happen and awards be given to certain people. And it just happens because this person has a lot of money. And if, if the organizers don't do this thing, they're going to lose all this money. And it's, we don't ever want to be in a position where someone, one person can dictate these things happening. So yeah, I don't, I don't know how yeah. to strike that balance. I think that, like we need people working full time, but we also need to really celebrate the the grassroots activists as well. Um, I, I guess the reason why I initially brought it up way back in the timeline was to say that the stuff we're talking about is certainly aided by the fact that you have someone like Wayne Pacelli who makes $380,000 a year and has a lot of money and power. But this stuff still happens on local grassroots level as well. It just doesn't get mm. articles in the New York Times and the Washington Post, which makes it easier for other people like us to talk about it when it's in these major publications. So, yeah, I don't know. It's just like a whole bunch of how do we fix this? I don't know. If we can fix it, how do we walk away? I don't. I just don't know. So um, now that we've officially ruined AR conference for all y'all, <laughs> we're just going to continue on and uh, be the buzzkills that we are. <laughs> and let's talk about allyship. <laughs> Girl. Yeah. Um, so this is a tricky, sensitive issue. And... Look, as an ally to several movements myself, I want to acknowledge like how important allyship is because we can't expect that the only people that are going to speak up or fight for a movement are the people that are harmed by it. Like we can't expect they're the only ones that are going to do the emotional labor. So allies are incredibly important. However, allies always need to be aware of how much space they're taking up. <laughs> And um, when I say space, I mean like making sure that you're not taking up too much time and space in groups and that you're not being heard over um, other people who want to speak out. So, well, like, And what, what the purpose of your speaking up is for. Yeah. Is it to actually affect change or is it to make yourself feel better and get likes on a post because you said the right words in the right order? Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing a lot of like very lengthy posts from men who are kind of acknowledging stuff that they've done, but it's not, it's not really affecting any change. And then it just results in them getting a bunch of likes and people being like, you're so amazing and you're so wonderful. And that's not where the focus should be right now. It shouldn't be on making men feel better about what they've done in the past. Mm. Yeah. I, I'm going to take kind of a bold stance and that 
male allies and not that women are the only ones that are harmed by sexual assault. So I don't mean to imply that, but people that identify as male who haven't been harmed by sexual assault or harassment in the movement and want to show solidarity with the survivors of it. If you're not going to come out and be specific about what you may have done or been complicit in, do not make an apology Mm -hmm. because we do not need any more long ass fluffy and vague posts that talk about how sorry you are for your male privilege and that you haven't spoken out, but you're not actually giving any details because all that does is results in people wanting to make you feel better and give you cookies and likes. And, you know, that's where we start seeing posts that have all these comments about, oh, you're so great. Thanks for seeing this. You're being so brave and blah, blah, blah. And you're taking up so much space in this conversation, but you're not actually helping to have any conversation about what is happening that's actually wrong. Like if you're not going to come out and be like, I saw these type of behaviors and I didn't say anything or uh, people have approached me and asked me to speak out and I said no because I was uncomfortable and I recognize that and this is the way that I'm going to try to make changes going forward. Like if you're not going to be specific in your apology or in your action steps, then we really don't need your apology posts right now because it only really looks like you're trying to feel better about yourself and you're not actually trying to affect change yeah the only time an apology post does anything is if it's tied to someone who's publicly come out and you come out and say yes I you know this did happen to this person I back up this person's story or this person did come to me when they said they did and I did not you know I took the actions they said like that's the only time that it even starts to help is when you're backing up someone else's story and taking specific accountability. I will say that we live in a litigious country and that basically puts a stranglehold on all of this. We see this with victims that they they have to consult lawyers and they have to make a game plan for coming out with their accusations because they're at risk of being sued. Um, I do understand that for male allies, there's probably a lot of risk there as well. And that may be Part of why they don't take specific accountability because they know by doing so they could open themselves up to a lawsuit. I can understand that you can't necessarily come forward and say, oh, yeah, I helped ruin this woman's career because she was making noises about something because then you could be sued. And I think that that's why it's not an immediate fix, but that's why as a society, as a community, we should start thinking about restorative justice over, you know, the legal system that we have now because... I don't feel like the justice system that we have in place actually works for victims very often, especially in cases like this. Um, I know that lawsuits can help people feel like they've gotten justice, but I don't feel like they often really benefit the victim. So I think we need to start looking at a system that allows for people to come forward and take accountability without risking everything. It allows victims to come forward and say their stories without them risking everything. Um, I do think these stories are important to come out, but I don't like the idea that they're career killers in the sense that, kind of like Paul was talking about before, where where that's the equation that we're all instantly doing is, is this worth ruining this person's career? Um, I don't think people should have as much power as they do. So there's just a lot that needs to happen, but I think we just need to start looking at things in a different way. 
But within that, with male allies, again, if you're not going to come forward and take specific accountability and say, this is how I'm fixing what I did, then we don't need to hear it because it is just performative. There's no way for it not to be performative. I heard a really good analogy from someone. They were saying it's like when you're um, trans or non-binary and someone uses a wrong pronoun for you, but like outside of your company and they come and tell you and they're like, oh, I misgendered you the other day. And the person's like, why are you telling me this? Like, this doesn't help at all. You know, like it's just making you feel better about the thing that you did wrong, but now you're making me feel worse. And that's what a lot of this feels like these vague, like, oh, you know, I contributed to this and I have all this privilege and I'm just going to do better. And it's like, that's not making any of us feel any better. And all it's doing again is getting you to be called brave where the last person who should be called brave is someone who's had privilege and has not suffered from like any of this stuff. Um, and it doesn't help the victim at all. It doesn't help us to know that you vaguely behind the scenes were working against us and that you're like going to stop doing it now. That doesn't help. Yeah. And I really like your point about, cause we are, we can be very litigious and it can be, um, you know, have bad results to come out and be like specific about the things that maybe you've done wrong. So if you can't be specific about like owning up to maybe mistakes you've made in the past and like, let me be clear, we've all made mistakes. Mm -hmm. There are all areas where, um, you know, we could have done more in like many different situations and scenarios. Right. So it's not like I'm vilifying anyone who's made a mistake, but if you can't be specific about that, then at least be specific about the steps that you're going to take going forward. Like make statements that you are going to be held accountable for. So if you're an organization who wants to come out and try to like get ahead of this and say things like, you know, we are putting a sexual harassment policy in place and we stand by, you know, we stand with the people that are coming forward and Mm -hmm. we believe in having you know, equal opportunity and blah, 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 like all of that stuff, like be clear about what the process is going to look like. And then if anything happens, be honest about it. Don't hide it. Match your actions to your words Mm -hmm. going forward. You know, I actually, um, Nicole, I agree with 99.9% of what you said. I, and, and I'm about to say something that I have absolutely no facts to back this up with but (laughs) i would actually guess that the reason that men specifically are not as specific about what they've done when they say it i would say that it's i would guess because again i have no idea but i would say it's less so that they're worried about like the legal actions and more so that they're worried about their reputation and you did point out like their career and those sorts of things like this is just purely i mean again this is based off nothing but i would guess that (laughs) a lot of these people are more worried about they're more worried about their reputation than they are about the legal things, especially like the, these CEOs and these like these heads of organizations like Wayne is making, you know, $300,000. He's going to be, if, if there is any legal things against him, he's going to be able to hire the best lawyer and he's not going to be facing any, I would, I would imagine he's not going to any, get get any legal repercussions from this in the same way that we see a lot of the like the entertainment people they're not getting any legal repercussions because they can just hire the the absolute best lawyer and the the oftentimes the victims don't have an endless supply of money and and aren't going to be able to represent themselves with the best lawyers so i mean this this of course doesn't apply to someone that 
is not the head of an organization is not making triple you know hundreds of thousands of dollars a year but i don't know that just popped up in my head that that i feel like they're more worried about their reputation and that's why they don't list more specifics i could be completely wrong with that though no, I think, I think that's fair. I think it's a really good point. And I I do think even just in interpersonal relationships, things that are not necessarily taking place on a public stage, I think that that's something people inherently do because it's a lot easier to forgive someone who's like, oh, I used to have some uh, sexist beliefs, but then I learned. That's a lot easier to say, oh, that's okay. And like, good for you for, you know, versus someone who's like, oh yeah, I used to, do x specific thing but now i don't and that's harder because then you know exactly what they were doing it's not this uh philosophical thing it's like oh and you know if that's something that's a hot button for you then you're like i don't know if i can move past Mm -hmm. that you know yeah like um or someone's saying they used to be racist and you're like oh that's you know that's bad but like i'm glad that you're not anymore versus like oh yeah i used to say or do this specific (laughs) racist thing you're like oh i don't that's that's hard for me to give you cookies and say that we're cool um, when I know that these like specific actions you've taken. Um, so I, I agree with you, Paul. I think it's both. I think uh, for some of these people, it's definitely worry about lawsuit and documenting things publicly. But for a lot of people, I think it's also just, yeah, I don't want to be committed mm-hmm. to admitting that I did a specific bad thing because then that's not something people can just breeze past. They actually have to process it and decide if they're okay with it. And I think for a lot of these men, they wouldn't be again for a lot of these uh, allies coming out who are like, Oh, I, you know, I could have been better. Um, yeah. What if you had some of these guys coming out saying like, I helped to blacklist these women from a conference. That's a lot harder for us to be like, Oh, it's okay. And you know, you've done such good work. If you're like, Oh, like you had a direct hand in hurting someone's career or someone came to me and divulged this stuff and I told her that, you know, the animals were more important than this instance of sexual harassment. That's a lot harder to move past than like, oh, I, I just didn't know. And I, I was, you know, I was also um, under the influence. Like I've seen a lot of these apologies. A lot of these men have been using the word gas gaslit or gaslighted saying that they were also or manipulated saying that they were also victims basically of the charms of these more powerful men and i don't think that that's necessarily untrue but again now you're taking space and focus away from victims and you're excusing why you're complicit in this stuff and that's not story that we need to hear that's not helping anything you're not really taking responsibility if you're saying oh yeah I was complicit but like also it was because I was under this person's influence and I I was fooled too and it's like good for you why are we hearing this story you know yeah Mm -hmm. I think uh that's because I was actually gonna tie in the Nathan Runkle piece anyways Mm -hmm. but then you specifically brought up pretty much exactly what he said in his his big statement that he made which was in reflecting upon why I didn't act sooner, I realized that I too was subjected to gaslighting, a lack of information, manipulation, isolation, and other tactics that made it difficult for me to see the situation with clarity. So it is almost like, hey, sorry about all these things, but it wasn't really my fault anyway. So like, don't don't blame me. Yeah, don't I was a victim me. too, yeah. <laughs> essentially, which is not not what we need to hear. Yeah, it's no. not it's not helpful if everyone just keeps being like 
gets the finger pointed at them and then they just point the finger at someone else. Yeah. And, you know, I have to be honest here that, you know, there's a lot of information. I know that this sucks that there are things that are still out there that we can't talk about, but there are stories that these people were complicit. So it makes it very hard to see some of these people coming forward and claiming allyship and that they were also harmed by these people or that they wish they could have done more when some of us are behind the scenes being like, fuck you, I have receipts that you were involved in this shit. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I just... I want to caution these people that like you think you're getting ahead of this by coming out and trying to like put a rosy picture on this stuff, but it's only going to do more damage later on if this information comes to light. So like, please don't make things worse by trying to make it seem like you didn't know or that, you know, your hands were tied when there are those of us that know that they weren't yeah and we may not be able to come forward because again we're afraid of lawsuits and whatnot but yeah there's a lot of people who know the truth and know that these people are not some of these people are not nearly as innocent as they're making it seem Mm -hmm. um and again it goes back to that that's why they're not taking specific accountability because it's hard to claim that you didn't know when you start listing out specific instances of what you did that shows a level of knowledge and a level of intention that you had at that time. Yeah. And the and my point in bringing that up is not to say that, you know, eventually these people will be like outed or not. That's not the point. The point is if you're truly committed to making this movement safer and more inclusive, coming out with some half-assed apology that there are people out there that know isn't truthful isn't actually going to heal anything because that's going to send the message that it's like oh this is not real Mm -hmm. you know you're just like putting out a good face like you know now that this is out there I can kind of say but when I attended AR conference a couple years ago I was you know we had already had our podcast but we were still kind of outsiders we weren't really in touch with the mainstream AR movement And it was like immediate when I got there that I started hearing rumors about Nick Cooney. And it was like, I felt like most of what I heard for like two or three, you know, the two days was about like Alex Hershaft and Nick Cooney and how dangerous and problematic they are. So it rings very untrue to me now that I see people coming out and being like, oh, I didn't know. And it's like, yeah. but I knew. And I don't know if all of those rumors were are being substantiated or not. Like some of them may still be, you know, exaggerations. I don't know. But if as someone who was not very connected heard those things at my very first mainstream AR event, you cannot fucking tell me that the people running the event or were connected to Nathan didn't know, or uh, not Nathan, that were connected to Nick didn't know. Because it was like the worst kept secret in AR. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. (sighs) (laughs) and i see here uh andy i think you have a note about men choosing not to speak at the conference as you know question mark is that a good way to be an ally and i have a lot of 
feelings about it. I think it's a start. Um, I think if we can make it so the conference can't go on, um, yeah, I, I don't know, just don't attend it if the speaker list doesn't look great and people aren't be able to like speak openly about intersectional topics, don't go, don't speak there. Um, but I think that's that's just a start. You know, I think men in general need to think about sharing space with other people. If you're able, because of your high profile, to speak at a conference, bring someone else in your organization with you and give them half the time. Um, support people publicly. Like if you don't go, publicly state that you're not going and this is why. So I think, I mean, I think it can be a good sign of solidarity, but I think if men just stop there, that it's not far enough. Mm -hmm. um, I saw um, a conversation on Facebook where someone was asking, you know, should I apply for this or not? And people left their various opinions. And something that was brought up was, well, if all of these, you know, the good men decide not to, I'm saying that in air quotes, uh, decide not to speak, won't that just leave the door <laughs> wide open for those that aren't even aware of these topics and, and are not going to re represent them well, they're not going to represent a pro-intersectional viewpoint or you know, what, whatever it might be that we would hope that they would represent. Um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that statement. Like, well, I should go because I'm, I'm a good guy and I should be there instead of some bad white guy. Um, I think there's definitely... Um space for that, for sure. I think there is some power in attending something to offer a different perspective. Um, I have a couple tips. One is if you're not already following the media or the work of some of the prominent women who have been trying to call this stuff out, I recommend that you do that and you you know, kind of take your lead from them. I'm sure we'll be hearing more in the coming weeks um, from some of these women like Carol Adams and, uh, you know, maybe Lauren Ornelas and Patrice Jones and stuff about like what the plan is for AR. So I would maybe just hang back a little bit and kind of see what other people that are doing this work are going to be doing. And also, if you do decide to go to an event, go to be disruptive. Yeah. <laughs> like if you're an intersectional male ally and you're like, I want to go so that I'm not, you know, making sure some like problematic person is going to quote unquote take my spot um, or you want to take the spot away from a problematic person, then great, go. But like give a speech about, an intersectional topic or make sure that you interject in your speech something about the AR times up and the sexual assault harassment. Like if you're going to go, make sure not a single person leaves that event who hasn't heard what's been going on. Yeah. Like people should walk away from AR if it even ends up happening this year being like, oh shit, like this was not your normal AR. Right. Like we didn't let this event go on like normal and pretend like everything's fine. Yeah, because there are, I mean, you could also just attend the conference and be a dissenter <laughs> at the conference, which is what some people who are blacklisted have done in years past as a way to still have a voice but not be supporting the conference. So I just think men need to, you know, in this case that we're talking about, men need to be honest about, are they doing it to have a, a good air quotes voice in at this conference or are they doing it to still preserve a space where they're given a platform to speak 
and um, they're just going to get up there and not say anything problematic, but not also, like, be a voice of dissent. Mm. Because, honestly, you can get to a point, like... Like, there's always going to be problematic things out there. Nazis have fucking rallies, you know, currently, which still blows my mind. Um, there just gets, it, there's got to be a point where we say this is just toxic and I'm not going to participate anymore. And I'm going to do, my effort is going to go towards letting people know this thing's problematic. And then if you want to still participate in something to help make it better, you have to be criticizing it from within. You have to get up on that stage and use that stage to say this is all bullshit. Yeah. Otherwise, you're just you're just fooling yourself that you're doing some kind of work when really you're just preserving the fact that you're someone who gets invited to conferences to speak. Yep. And yeah, just to kind of echo that too, I was going to say I don't think you necessarily need to if you get asked to speak, like you don't need to actually go to it to still have an influence on like the people that you would have an influence on anyway so it's like if if you were asked to speak that probably means you have some presence or some um i don't know what the word i'm looking for but you know what i'm talking about you have some clout mm-hmm. uh in general and if you make social media posts for example uh, for example about why you're not going you know it's like that's going to reach some bubble of people and even if those people probably maybe already knew about your stances and agreed with you, maybe that will prompt like them to make some post about it. And then maybe it'll reach some people that say would be going to this conference and aren't necessarily aware of these. So I don't think that necessarily you would need to go to the conference in order to reach those people that, that don't have any idea about these issues. I think there might be other ways. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, like you said, Paul, that means that you have some level of influence some level of privilege if you're, you know, being invited to these events, um, use that to promote other things. You know, there's the uh, Vegans of Color. Yeah, I don't know the exact name. Yeah, I feel like like the name changed uh, this year. But there's a very small conference that happens in Southern California every year. And we weren't able to go this year because we were at a different conference, unfortunately. But it's an incredible conference. And so use, you know, whatever... funding you may be able to raise, whatever influence you have, put focus on something like that. Put focus on these smaller events that could grow into being something larger and more mainstream if they had the financial support that, you know, some of these more problematic events have. Um, You know, just reach out and see how how you can help. So it's not, yeah, it's again, it's just like seeing what do I have as a resource to offer and like where would that best help people who are are doing the right things already. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of it. And, and this is, you know, I don't know that there's an exact right answer, but I think that's the age old kind of um, question that we all struggle with is like, do I put my efforts into making something problematic better or do I just go and support something that's not problematic already? And I kind of fall on the side of like, I'm going to go support people who haven't been shitty and help get them get a bigger platform because usually people who haven't been shitty have a very small platform. <laughs> it's just kind of how things work. It's how power dynamics work. Um, I don't think there's problems with trying to make change from within, but I also kind of say to what end, you know, like some of these organizations, are they really truly necessary to the movement? I think some of them maybe are, but I don't think that they all necessarily are. And I think we need to look at that. I don't think we need the AR conference for instance. Um, 
I think there's other things that could be done. There's other conferences that could take the place of that. Um, I haven't been able to attend, but I know there's international animal rights conferences that I've heard are more pro-intersectional and less problematic. Um, so I think we need to ask, like, is this specific conference something that needs to be fixed or can it just go away and can we help people who have already been doing good work uh, with those funds and resources and support? Definitely. And I think an example, if someone if someone was to choose to go and try and work from the inside, I think both of us probably cover this on the show. Uh, when it happened was the hashtag AR2 white thing where, um, you know, mm-hmm. white men were going up and asking presenters during the Q&A, would you consider not speaking to make space for someone else this year? And I feel like that would be a good alternative if you have to be there. And that's like a solid example of how one can disrupt. But yeah, there was um, a conference that was in Portland, the um, critical resistance conference that was free and at, it was at a college and had a bunch of great speakers. And unfortunately it's not around anymore, but I would love to see more things like that. Like it doesn't have to be everyone from all over the country going to one big thing for a weekend. You know, we can make it more accessible by making them smaller, making it in a venue that can be free or very cheap and people can just travel locally. And it's not this big ordeal. Like obviously a conference where, Everyone has to fly across the country and get in a hotel in one of the most expensive cities in America. It's not very accessible for a lot of people. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I think there is a lot of examples of like, I love that you brought up that AR2 white thing, because not only were they going up and asking the speakers, the, you know, white speakers, if they would make space for other people, but they wore shirts the entire weekend that said like AR2 white and, you know, had a hashtag on it. And they were like visibly disrupting the event. They were not letting people like pretend like there wasn't an issue, you know, ignore the problem. And I think, you know, if there are people that, because we understand there are people whose income kind of relies on attending events like this, and then they need the platform and accessibility of being able to reach larger audiences that AR provide, you know, hang a sign on your booth that says like, I believe women, you know, stop sexual harassment in the AR community, something like that. Like be very visually outspoken. If you are a speaker, give a speech about that. You know, we went to, um, uh, we spoke at VegFest London and within the first minute of our speech, we called out the, (laughs) Mm-hmm. the event we were speaking at we were like the name of this event is um the vegan consumer show and we were like this movement is way too consumerist and focus on capitalism and we're never going to reach liberation if we keep doing shit like this and spending the kind of money on events like this and we gave a speech that was basically like fuck the mainstream movement we need to get back to radical roots so there are ways that you can go in and disrupt these spaces if you want to but what i really don't want to see happen is people that consider themselves allies go in and say like, well, I'm a good ally, but I'm not going to address anything. I'm still going to get up and talk about my own organization and, and not really address anything that's been going on, you know? And I think the focus on speakers, I, I think it's good. Um, but I do think it also puts the responsibility in the wrong spot. Um, for instance, there's this this belief that like white men are taking the spots of other people who could have otherwise spoken, which ignores the fact that, um, and hopefully I won't get sued for this, but there, there's an alleged history of farm 
blacklisting speakers and not allowing telling them that they are not allowed to speak at the conference because of things that they've said either publicly or when they have spoken in the past. Um, there's people who can't afford to go because, you know, because like you said, you have to fly to the city and yada, yada. Um, so it, it might be an okay thing to have in the midst of other things, but it still kind of lets the organization and the conference off the hook for things that they may be doing in the background. So my point is, say every white man was like, no, no white dudes are speaking next year. There may still not be enough people of color and women to fill those spots because of other things that have happened in the background. And it's not really shining light on that. Like within the conference, I want to see the conference called out for blacklisting people and for preventing certain people from having a platform in the first place. Or, you know, they've come out and said, hey, we we have speakers apply. We don't approach people. So like if there's not enough people of color, it's because they didn't approach us so like at the conference call them out and say well why didn't you reach out to some of these people why did you offer to cover their travel did you offer to pay them to speak here you know are you using some of that money from donors like PETA to give scholarships to other people to be able to attend the conference you know stuff like that so um, I just wanted to highlight that because when the the AR2 white thing came out I thought like this is great but like also I want to make sure that that the people with the most power in that situation are still being called out. And I know, again, it's tricky because you're risking, you know, if you can't prove what you're saying, then you're risking some backlash. So, you know, with that in mind, but I do think that there are some things that have been documented. And if we can speak out about that, that's really calling attention to where the true problem is. Because white people do need to be, you know, privileged people need to be willing to step down and make space. But I just want to show that sometimes the space is never there for people without privilege, mm. whether white people are taking it or not. Um, and that's something that we need to be more careful about, I think, in these conversations. A great example of that, that what you're saying reminds me of, is when uh, Republicans talk about how every American has the right to access health care. Mm. And it's like, yeah access to healthcare isn't healthcare. Like, right. <laughs> I have access right. to healthcare, but I don't have, you know, $700 a month to pay for it. So <laughs> yeah. access there. doesn't do me any good if it's not actually feasible that I'm able to obtain it. And I think that is kind of a problem that farm has had is they're like, Hey, you know, they kind of throw their hands up and they're like, well, we just let whoever wants to apply. And it's like, yeah, but you fostered an environment that makes it inaccessible or a hostile environment right. for people. So, and now you're acting like it's on them that they're not there, right. not that you haven't created and this. And it's not like they approve everyone who applies. So it's like, you're still making decisions about who gets to speak. We actually went back and forth quite a bit about if we should apply to be speakers this year. <laughs> and we're like, I don't think there's any way that that application would get approved, but... It might be fun. You never know. <laughs> yeah, it's it's almost this this idea that they can fall back on. Well, we you know we don't solicit speakers. It's who applies. We can only select who applies. It's this self fulfilling yeah. prophecy. It reminds me of like whitewashing in Hollywood when they're like, we're casting a story that takes place in in Egypt, and we have then we end up casting like these white guys. And like, well, there's no no one of Egyptian descent that is famous enough to play this role. 
And it's like, well, that's because you won't let them get cast in roles like this to begin with. (laughs) And so it's like, okay, if you have a conference that is curated to only include specific viewpoints, like it's worth pointing out that the conference is basically has become a vehicle for a lot of the sort of effective altruist crowd and very like welfare and things like that. And there are other viewpoints represented, but in general, it has a specific kind of vibe to it. So if you're creating a conference that's sort of curating the movement and only allowing certain people in with certain ideas and you're not giving people, you know, uh, role models to look up to and sort of emulate these other modes of thinking, then you're just going to keep getting more of the same every time you go to the they go to curate the speakers. And, yeah, they should be actively seeking out interesting, diverse, you know, voices from like, a, you know, and I say diverse from like a number of different standpoints, but they're not doing that. And they're just like, oh, well, we had, you know, 20 people from the Humane League speak last year and 20 people want to do it again this year. So I guess we just have to have them come on. <laughs> yep. Right. <sighs> uh, well, you know, there's going to be like a dozen speaking spots open now that Nick is <laughs> not speaking. <laughs> I swear that fucker was like on every panel. <laughs> he had so many speaking spots. <laughs> Not as much as her chef. Maybe we can create <laughs> what? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, Alex. Yeah, those two. I think they were like in the most. You know. So. <laughs> and then there was like one intersectionality panel, and it was like two women and Alex and I was like this is all we get yeah and we had a friend who who is a man of color and he wanted to speak about his organization and her shaft was like no you're gonna go on the intersectionality panel he's like I'm not qualified to talk about this he's like no that's where you belong I don't know that's not an exact quote essentially but you know he's kind of like oh you're not a white guy well clearly you have to be on the intersectionality panel and yeah it's wow gross not good it's not good <laughs> not, not good, good. Yeah. yeah agreed pretty well Paul, summed Paul's up. coming <laughs> out strong <laughs> for, for yeah. the record this is paul on 10 <laughs> that's adorable <laughs> oh that's funny so with all of this i think we've hit on some things today uh, as ways of how to help, but we had a really good call with someone the other day and I took a few notes and um, they had some really great ideas about other ways that people can help. And this doesn't necessarily have to be coming just from allies and allies don't necessarily just have to be, you know, men with privilege in situations like this. There's a lot of powerful women who unfortunately have a lot of internalized misogyny and um, have been perpetuating a lot of these harmful ideas, have been harassing victims. So all of us can help make things better. This should be a community effort. Um, Not saying that the victims themselves necessarily bear any responsibility, but just as a community as a whole, I think we all need to be looking at ways that we can help out. Um, So one of those ways, as I just mentioned, is to look into these organizations that are going to survive this and stick around, look at the board that they have left and see if any of those women have been ones that have been harassing victims or coming out in support of the abusers. Um, Because it's not enough for us to support an organization that just has one problematic person kicked off 
the board or kicked out of power if the people left behind are just as problematic and just as supportive of abusive behaviors. So we need to continue to call these organizations out because this is what they do. They just shift people around. A lot of these guys, a lot of these abusers are going to end up getting probably better positions somewhere else. Um, a lot of them have been considered at, um, for consultant positions for other organizations. They have powerful friends who are going to make sure that they land on their feet. Some of them get the like golden parachute deals, you know, so they can go out with a nice big bonus for harassing people. So we need to we need to continue looking at these organizations and their board and how they proceed in the future and not just let this die down and be like, oh, yeah, that guy got kicked out. So everything's fine. Um, another thing to do is publicly support people. So talk to friends, talk to coworkers, be out on social media, publicly supporting people, respond to comments. You know, if you see shitty comments somewhere, respond to them. If you go on a post that is shitty itself and there's a lot of positive comments, you know, respond, call some things out. We saw some of these uh, public apologies that we've been talking about today or public statements, you know, we've gone in and unfortunately most of the threat is just supporting and giving them cookies, but there have been a few brave people who are like, this apology is weak as fuck. Um, this is ridiculous, you know, like, or you're not taking accountability for what you did. Like, don't even talk to me until, you know, so there's been people who have been not allowing this space to be as comfortable as it could be. Andy, you said, you know, Go out and like ask what are the specific things you're going to do going forward. Um, have repercussions and consequences for bad behavior. So this should not get to a point where someone's like the head of an organization and then has to have this slew of evidence before they have a repercussion. If you're a manager at a job and one of your employees does something shitty, make sure there's an immediate consequence for their bad behavior. Um, if you have a friend who's doing shitty things, make sure there's an immediate consequence for their behavior. Like, hey, dude, you're not going to be invited to any more parties if you keep being a creep to all of our friends, <laughs> for instance. <laughs> right. Not that I've had any experience with that. No. <laughs> um, call out jokes, call out bad behavior, you know, give a spotlight to underprivileged people where appropriate. So I saw something really cool where someone was asked for for an interview for like a news show or something and they were like actually my colleague over here is more well versed in that subject so I'm gonna let her speak on that so you know don't just tokenize people and be like oh look at me being great and giving a spotlight but if you know that someone knows their shit and they're actually better qualified to answer something or or take the lead on a project or what have you give them that space to do that yeah, and as far as the giving a spotlight too, like there has been a history of only certain people being like trained or giving the opportunities. So you may look around and realize that there aren't a lot of people that are as well trained as they need to be or that there is mostly like the white men in leadership positions. Like reach out and start like training mm -hmm. other people. You know, see that there has been a culture of, you know, the boys, people I think don't really acknowledge as much as they should that while a boys club can be very um, exclusive of m women leaders, it also has prevented women from like moving up, 
you know? Yeah. Non, or I, and I shouldn't say just women, but like non cis white hetero dudes, because a lot of those male leaders have like reached down and they help train like these younger men and help get them ready for these leadership positions. And then they look around and go, well, of course the, our leaders are men. Like they're the ones that are best suited for this. They're the ones that have been trained. So we need to see that there are opportunities to like help shepherd and mentor and like lift other people up too and have a diversity of opinion like if you look around and realize your organization is like mostly male dominated like try to hire other voices and get them ready to take on the mantle of leadership if they're not already but I mean there are plenty of people that are ready to be leaders and be honest about the people who have been promoted who aren't like the white cishet dudes is it because they echo and reinforce the problematic behavior? Is it because they don't make you uncomfortable? Mm. And is there someone who maybe is outspoken and does make you a little uncomfortable but is really good at their job and shows a lot of potential? Can you lift that person up and let there be some discomfort? Um, I'll try to find it for the show notes, but I actually read and just forwarded to my team this really good article that did do research into why like what happens to women where their careers fall off and like why they don't reach these higher levels. And it's exactly what you said. It's because early on in their career, there's a lack of opportunity and a lack of mentoring and coaching that men typically have access to and at critical stages. So if you like don't, if you don't get that coaching and guidance early on, and if you don't have someone who's looking at you for your potential then you're not, you're already going to be far behind other people. And it's very difficult to catch up at that point. And a lot of women get discouraged and stop trying, or they just get stuck at certain parts in their career. And I certainly experienced that. And I had all female leadership, Mm -hmm. but they didn't like that I was outspoken. They didn't like that I was, you know, very opinionated. Um, And so my career was blocked for several years before my supervisor after that saw potential in me and pulled me up and helped actually coach and mentor me in a new line of work. And I was very lucky to find that. A lot of people don't. A lot of underprivileged people don't get that experience of someone paying attention to what are the raw skills that these people are exhibiting and who has potential here. Versus, you know, I also work at a company where guys with MBAs are given like all the priority in the company. They have absolutely no soft skills, no leadership skills. They're terrible at leading projects, but they're given all the responsibility because their pedigree looks good. Um, So, yeah, it's just shifting this idea. Like if you're in a position to mentor someone and that can look like a lot of things, do it. Give that person some some help in getting their career moving forward. Mm -hmm. Um. Uh, also please stop supporting media and people who support abusers so we call out called out Colleen Patrick Gajero last week on our podcast um she has basically made a public statement that was vague in her defense but that basically said we should have compassion for everyone including the abusers and uh the tone of it was very In my view, it seemed to kind of silence any backlash against abusers and to also limit the amount of compassion we should have for victims. Um, So just call it out. Call it out publicly. If you see someone, a celebrity, you know, a person of notoriety making these statements, call it out on the statement. Call it out if you have a platform like us. Call it out on that platform. But also just 
you know, stop supporting that person. And that may mean sacrificing something that you enjoy and that's been important to you. But there's just got to be a time and place when enough is enough. And you're not going to give someone, especially someone like her who's so popular, um, you know, she's been allowed, she's been called out many, many times for other problematic statements as well. But she has the numbers, you know, she's probably like top in like vegan media right now. And so why should she ever change? So it's on us to stop supporting that, even though we may enjoy the the stuff she's putting out and other people like not just her, but other people like her as well. Um, there is, I heard rumor that there's going to be a male ally group starting. So um, if you can find an ally group to join or if you perhaps want to start one yourself um there's like the white nonsense roundup roundup um that was an ally group that was started to allow people of color to tag these people in posts or show you know let them know that there's problematic posts out there and then they go do the emotional labor of explaining why that's problematic and kind of pushing back on it so that people of color don't have to so that's like a, a an example of an ally group that's done really good work and that you know they're not exhibiting ally theater they're trying to take on the emotional labor for other people so that these things can still be addressed but don't have to be addressed by people who are public or personally affected and who are also probably just really exhausted of having those conversations um so similarly i've heard that this male ally group there's some men who are currently working behind the scenes right now to make this to kind of organize this and then go public with it, but they're gonna do things like letters to the editor and you know responding to bad comments from men and explaining why things are problematic and backing up victims. So that's all great. That's all stuff you can do on your own. But I think if um, we just hear it all the time, like, oh, why aren't there men's groups about whatever? And it's like, yeah, why aren't there? We would love for there to be. So start them. Yeah, start them. <laughs> so just stop seeing it as a female thing or a, or um an underprivileged person thing to need a group, you know, and to like be more intentional and organized around this stuff. Like this is absolutely as much an ally's responsibility as anyone else's, if not more so. Um, so see what's out there, see what you can do, see what you can start. Yeah. And I'll add on the note of calling shit out. Like I, I am always very careful to let people know that we don't expect that just because you're an ally that there's this unlimited amount of emotional labor that we're expecting from you. I'm not necessarily asking that like men everywhere like devote all of their free time and stuff to dealing with this shit because, you know, I think we all need to walk a balance. But be cognizant of like, for example, if you start a post where you're apologizing or saying that you're an ally and that you support women and that these are the steps you're going to take in the future, like know that you started that thread and if people start to post shitty things on that thread it is your responsibility to call it out because if you've started a thread like that and then you let a comment exist on it unchallenged that's counter to your point or could be very harmful to the movement you say you're an ally to or harmful to the survivors of this abuse like you just now made matters worse you know you created a platform for this problematic shit to be shared and people are paying attention to the fact that you did not push back on that so just be aware that like you don't have to do all of this extra stuff like all the time but if you do choose to make a post or like label yourself an ally you are accepting some additional responsibility and you need to be cognizant of that 
Yeah, and I think um, that made me think of something. My last tip would be if you do identify as an ally of some kind, you still have to be open to the fact that like you might be fucking up or you may not know everything. I've seen a lot of people who step forward as feminists or anti-racist or what have you develop this weird thing where it's like, well, no, I can't be doing anything wrong because I'm this thing. And it's like, well, yeah, but you're still coming from a place of privilege. We all have learning to do and we all like... Or you may be problematic, you know, maybe your anti-racism game is flawless, but you're misgendering people or, you know, you're being trans exclusive or something. I mean, we all have things to learn always. So I've seen a lot of people who are like, well, I'm feminist, so I can't be like date rapey. And it's like, but you are, you have more to learn. (laughs) Like you need to be open to like this, the thing you just did is fucking creepy Um, or whatever, you know, or you're supporting like your friend. I've seen this so many times, like guys are feminists, but then they'll be hanging out with their friends and their friend tells a story and I'll hear it and be like, that was concerning. Like your friend just basically said like, oh, I went after this chick because she was super drunk and you're not calling him out on it and you're laughing at this story. That's not okay. You're not being a good ally in that moment. So like just be open to the fact that there's probably continuous education that needs to happen and that it's not, you don't just put on the label and you're done. Um, (laughs) And I, I just see that so often from people that think like, oh, well, no, I went to a Black Lives Matter rally. So like I couldn't possibly have been racist about something. And it's like, I'm done. I'm done. I'm perfect. Yeah. I got my trophy and I'm done. Yeah. Human complete. Um, (laughs) So, and it's just, you know, we always talk and you guys do too, talk about that fragility and it's a real thing. And it's just something you have to constantly battle and just be prepared. If again, if you're stepping out publicly, then that's, that's work you're going to have to constantly do. And that's part of being an ally and getting those ally cookies, you know, like you don't get to just be a good guy. It means you're stepping up to do some really hard fucking work and make some sacrifices. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, it's it's like it's a process, not a label. Absolutely. Yes, yes I love that. Yeah, um, I feel like if I was to add something to the list, um, it would be learn to mm-hmm. shut up most of the time. I think when you're when you're talking <laughs> when, you know, at least for me and Paul, that's something that we're big on. And I think that extends to almost every aspect of life. Even vegan advocacy is like learning when to just shut up. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'd say that, like, most of the time, like, yeah, think about that big post. Do I need to make this post? Is it adding anything? Should I just be sitting back and listening right now? Um, I think it's it's important to share, like, during this time, it's like if you're super silent about everything, I think people will probably think it's suspect. But, you know, sharing the voices of people that are talking about this, that are affected by this and doing the work, I think is probably in my estimation, a decent way to sort of say, I'm here, I'm paying attention to the conversation, but I'm just trying not to take up space with my own opinions that aren't super relevant right now. Yeah, I love that. I I, I think that is so um, undervalued. You know, people think like it has to be their own voice and they need to put some big personal post out. And it's like, it doesn't need to be some big thing. It, 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 it's just a matter, you maybe like a post or um, maybe a survivor came forward and shared their story and then you, you share that yourself. Like you don't even need to necessarily comment on it. You know, just hit that share button, like let people see that you're paying attention, but that you're not, you know, making this about like your own focus. 
Yeah. And 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 I even am doing this, yeah. you know? I was like say. I don't have a lot of my own stories about this stuff, so I'm just trying to use, you know, my space and platform to uplift people that are doing this work or that sharing survivor stories. Absolutely. You know, so this isn't just like a male female thing. This is just, you know, how can we as a movement like better support people that have been harmed by this abusive behavior. Yeah, I was going to tack on to this that that's something I've had to learn as an ally and it's something I'm still working on is this idea of speaking for other people. And I know when I first came into like pro-intersectional advocacy, um, I noticed I was doing like a lot of explain, and I still get sucked into it sometimes because now my friends, it's this weird love hate thing where they like hate that I'm so, like I ruin all media for everybody all the time. <laughs> my friends like... We were literally on vacation together a couple weeks ago, and they're like, oh, what's the problem with Interstellar? What's the problem? Have oh you seen God. this movie? Is this, th- there's got to be some problem with this movie. And I'm just like, permanent buzzkill <laughs> person. <laughs> so it's like this weird thing where they hate it, and it makes them uncomfortable, but they're also constantly soliciting me to like rip stuff apart. And it's very strange. But I've just realized like I've gotten less and less comfortable with explaining like how black people think and why this is bad or like how, you know, LGBTQ people think and why this is bad. Not that I don't still kind of advocate, but I notice like regurgitating a lot of stuff that I've heard. Not everyone agrees on everything. And then I just feel like I'm kind of parroting opinions from certain people and it just feels like a very weird space to be in so where I'm going with this is that I think if we can just start addressing the behaviors themselves and why that just as humans they're not cool um like for instance with all of this I would like to see men instead of being like well women feel this way or women experience this I would like to see them saying things like hey consent matters you know, and just talk about consent culture and say like, so for instance, bro, like you were talking about going after some person because they were drunk and they seemed a little out of it. There's no way for that person to give their consent to you. So that is rapey, you know, instead of being like, oh, well, women feel or like this happens to women, you know, take like you don't speak for the victim, but help tackle the system within which they're victimized. Mm. If that makes sense. Yes, I love that. And that's something I'm I'm still working on. I'm still figuring out how to do that. But I've just noticed I've become more and more uncomfortable being like, well, this is bad because these people say this, mm. you know, versus like, this is bad because this is the underlying, you know, system of oppression and this is how it supports that system. So I'm not so much trying to speak for people. I'm trying to advocate for dismantling a system of oppression Mm. (laughs) (laughs) and done (laughs) show's over (laughs) yeah anything else y'all i mean i definitely i i certainly relate to that like trying to walk that line of figuring out like how much should i say and how do i represent this but i I love that that just sort of straight up saying why it's bad as opposed Mm -hmm. to well so-and-so says it's bad and people feel like that like i think that's great and i'm I'm going to work to incorporate that into my online vocabulary. Yeah, that was really yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great tip. I, I realized like I was doing it the other day about dreads. I was talking to some white person and they were like, what's the deal with dreads? And I was like, well, you know, the black community, blah, blah. And then I just felt really uncomfortable. And I was like, I don't feel like this is my, you know, so I was like, well, appropriation, like as a whole, like, let me explain it to you 
and not really get so much into like why a certain community I don't know like that you're a spokesperson yeah I felt very much like I was trying to be a spokesperson I was like but this isn't I don't feel like this is like a good thing for me to be doing Mm. but also I still want this person to walk away with some education like they're open to the information but it's just kind of approaching it in a slightly different way where you're sort of decentering because then it almost becomes like that person can argue with me about the opinion that I'm regurgitating and then I get very flustered sometimes and I you know Mm -hmm. versus like if I talk about a system of oppression I feel very well versed in that and I feel like I can kind of really speak to that and it's not so much a arguing about opinions um as much yeah yeah so I just had an epiphany the other day that I was like I need to go about this a bit differently same result hopefully but like in this different way that doesn't make me feel like I'm trying to take space on a topic that doesn't directly impact me Mm -hmm. and if I could end with anything about just this whole topic of you know sexual harassment and assault both for the animal rights community and just in general, I just implore people to understand that this is a big problem and that we all need to address it together and that we need to get, we need to understand that it's not going to be comfortable, but we need to challenge a lot of our old, like preconceived ideas about the way this works. You know, analyze your language. If you're using phrases like witch hunt, please stop, you know, do do some research as to why that's like hurtful and deeply fucked up. Yeah. Um, and just see that like this idea of being scared that, yeah, I just see a lot of the same language regurgitated over and over and I don't quite know how it became so popular, but things like, um, we shouldn't be trying this in the media and someone should be like innocent until proven guilty. And it's like, I, that is a legal standard. Like that is about whether or not like our justice system is going to take legal action against someone. That does not mean we can't believe a survivor's account of what happened to them. Those are like two very different things. You know, mm-hmm. and yeah. we're nobody's out to like ruin people's lives and reputations. And, you know, there will be time for conversations about restorative justice, but we just can't. Our focus can't be on like worrying about ruining people's lives and, you know, having to feel like we need to become investigators ourselves and whether or not the people that are coming forward are like telling the truth and what does that mean to the other person's life? Like that shouldn't matter. Our step one should be, you know, shutting up and listening if we ourselves have not been victims of this type of, you know, abuse. Listen to the people who have is number one. Number two, believe their stories Mm -hmm. and just let them take the lead on how we move forward. Mm -hmm. We don't need to be arguing about this internally, you know? Yeah, because it's interesting a lot of times when you see the victims saying that what they want to have happen, it is very much geared towards restorative justice. It's usually a call for more diversity on the board or they're usually not the ones holding the pitchforks demanding someone's career be over and they'd be ruined forever. You know, it's it's a lot of times they're asking like, hey, can we just give other voices a chance here so this doesn't happen in the future? And so, yeah, I think we need to take a step back and hear what the victims are actually saying and what they're asking for and let these things happen without this 
fear of people being ruined forever because they won't be first of all but like yeah statistically speaking statistically speaking won't be (laughs) right but like also yeah just how do we how do we help the victim get what they need to feel okay about you know and we will only ever be stronger the safer and more inclusive our movement is. Yes. That will yes. never, ever, ever harm our movement. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. It even goes to, um, I really like the episode y'all did about the tattoos. I finally got a chance to listen to it. Um, <laughs> do, you know, tattoos hurt the vegan movement? And I thought you did such a great job because it's it's just, it's the same thing. It's like we all, the more... The more diverse the movement is, the more people we can appeal to. And so that means putting away our biases and also dealing with, you know, abuse and uh, power dynamics. And so the safer we make it and the more inclusive we make it, the more inclusive the movement as a whole is going to be. And that's good for everyone. Absolutely. Yeah, I feel like people present this false dichotomy between we can help the animals or we can deal with this. And it's like, I feel like dealing with this is a part of helping the animals in the long run. Yeah. Yes. Totally agree. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's all I got. So to speaking of, that's all I got to say. I think we yeah. are. Yeah. <laughs> and speaking of allyship, um, we're very happy that we were able to do this episode with you all. And thank you for giving us opportunities to be heard yeah you know absolutely like I think this was modeling a great thing of you you both could have done a great job on your own we trust you with content like this but you took the opportunity to say hey let's get some other voices on here to talk about this and I think that's modeling really great allyship um where you give space to you know other other viewpoints well, we're, we are grateful that you are willing yeah. to join us and lend your voices and, <laughs> and, and for us to do the same as well. So, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely glad yeah, we yeah. did this rather than Andy and myself try to just tackle it on our own. Yeah. 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 We, we feel like that sometimes with certain topics like, oh, we should not be the only two voices yes. <laughs> recording about this. Yeah, I actually have a huge list of topics I want to do, but I'm like, I need to get someone on here to do this with us because we should not talk about this by ourselves. <laughs> yes, same, same. Yeah. Uh, I feel yeah. a struggle. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I'm pretty sure our listeners have to be all listened out at this point. <laughs> This was a very long episode, but we appreciate um, Mm -hmm. people's time and wanting to, you know, listen and truly hopefully take in the information for a very difficult topic. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Paul, this has definitely been a long journey. I'm glad we had this conversation. It was really interesting dissecting all of these apologies that were coming out. There's a lot of phrases you saw again and again and about like, just vague, we need love and we need to respect women and all these things, but never really taking accountability. There was one phrase that was noticeably absent from literally every single apology, and that was the following seven words. We are the Bearded Vegans, signing off. Shut up, just shut up, shut up. Shut up, just shut up, shut up. Shut up, just shut up, shut up. Shut it up, just shut up, shut up. Shut 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 it up, just shut up, shut up. We try to 